Major Butler shadow me. Yes, Director. What do you know about this man already? Tremaine? Big shot former Confederate colonel, or at least he claims to be. Hails from Atlanta. His followers harbor a fanatical devotion to both him and a way of life they believe the Union took from them. It's the lost cause, the idea of chivalrous men and gentle ladies. And let's pretend all those slaves were happy singing their songs in the cotton fields. When this goes much further, this evolution of that ideal is not so much focused on what was taken from them, but what they can get back. They're heading towards a bright future and he's leading the way. Make no mistake, in that next room, my friend, is one of the most dangerous men in America. Arlington, part of the New Century Multiverse, now available on Kindle. Here are all the lovely things everyone on YouTube had to say when I put my The Last Airbender podcast up there. I think they thought it was the actual movie. What kind of this video? It's very bad video. Just talk! We need show, not talk. I think you know that you are one motherfucker. I like firebending and waterbending. Practice a monologue? Hey, where is the movie? I hate it! Fuck! Where is the movie? This is just a bunch of bull shit. Gay, but movie. What the hell is this? My nigga, you are just talking for two hours. Shut up. Damn. Waiting. Then the fuck thing arrive. I don't mean to hurt you, but this sucks. Don't put this stuff on anymore, but goo try. We don't need it. Put it in your ass. In quotation marks, free film. Should have known better. It's amazing movie. Fuck you, go to hell. In French, please? This is my 501st podcast, and I am Alex Shaw. If you've already heard my 500th, then you'll know that there was so much material to showcase from even one-tenth of my back catalogue that I decided to split the show rather than having you guys listen to more than four hours in a row. And I know some of you are going, aww, but I'm sure others are grateful. So where you last left me, I was just finishing off doing Digital Gonzo. put it simply, I was exhausted with doing everything on my own and seeing only sporadic donations every now and again, it felt like I really needed to start doing something for a living. Luckily, about a year after that came Patreon, so we've been able to develop a system together wherein I produce content for you guys and you guys support us. It's so simple and fantastic, I wish it had been there years ago. But at this point, nothing like that was really being used. Getting new guests signed up in time to do a new podcast every week was becoming a major chore because it's always a case of can you do Tuesday? No, I can't do Tuesday. Can you do Wednesday? Yes, I can do Wednesday. I can't do Wednesday. Okay, how about Thursday? I can't do Thursday. How about Friday for everyone? Yeah, Friday's fine. Friday's fine. Thursday night. I can't do Friday. Right, how about next Monday then? And then suddenly you've got a late episode. It was madness. I needed a partner again that I could rely on. And we needed a large backlog of shows that we could record. And then if there was a week where we didn't have anything immediately to hand, go to the backlog. So that was exactly what I did. 
I got together with Sharon, my wife, who had been thinking about doing podcasting more full-term. She'd already been on uh, Gamer Dork and then a show called uh, Do Try This at Home with Matt Ramsey. So she became my co-host. And we worked really, really hard for the next year recording a whole bunch of shows that we banked to then allow me the time to devote myself to New Century. And we had a bunch of guests on. It wasn't just Sharon and I all the time, but it the fact that there was someone else I could talk with meant that we were able to produce podcasts with lightning efficiency. And that show was Digital Drift. Deep discussion and entertaining analysis of movies, games and media culture. Welcome to the Digital Drift. While Digital Cowboys was a name that I made up and tied in with us being kind of outlaw journalists, Digital Gonzo stemmed from Gonzo Journalism, which was coined by Hunter S. Thompson. That's where the uh, writer puts a lot of themselves into the story. That was a special thing in the 70s. It's not now, because everybody does it. And the term Gonzo is actually more associated with porn or a certain type of porn so people weren't able to get hold of digital gonzo on their work computers because their work computers thought that i was a porn show so that's a major reason for why the name changed digital drift relates to a concept from pacific rim the drift being what the pilots of the giant mech suits uh, use to get into each other's heads but it creates uh, an alternate plane of reality made up of thoughts and collected experiences and memories and we figured that our show would I suppose exist within that space and we prided ourselves on the fact that we got the term from a movie that most people pass off as just big dumb fun just like a Transformers movie um, the whole point of our show being we look a lot deeper into pop culture that just gets dismissed so one of the first episodes was actually clips that had been recorded previously on Gamer Dork, where uh, Sharon and Leah Haydu went to town on Fifty Shades of Grey. That's the book. Right. This is this is page one. This is chapter one, page one. Okay. She is introducing her main character. Uh, she's just woken up. She's sat in front of the mirror. She's brushing her hair. I attempt once more to bring it under control with the brush. I roll my eyes in exasperation and gaze at the pale brown-haired girl with blue eyes too big for her face staring back at me and give up. My only option is to restrain my wayward hair in a ponytail and hope that I look semi-presentable. That's the first page. That's how she introduces her main character. Already, and this is deserving of congratulations, she's, congr- she's created a main character I don't give a living shit about. <laughs> I don't care what happens to this girl, because her main aim within the first page of this, this story that is supposed to draw us in and, and make us understand who she is and what she cares about is she is fussing with her fucking hair and staring into the mirror with her too big, too pale eyes. And, and just... She's probably biting her lip. There it... Oh, God! <laughs> the lip biting! Oh, my God! The lip biting! Okay. What is that about? So, so... It, and and I'm, I'm, I'm reading it, and I'm visualising Kristen Stewart doing exactly that. <laughs> if they 
do make this into a film, and I'm fairly certain that it's inevitable. Oh, I get They don't get Kristen Stewart and Robert Pattinson to play the lead roles. There is no fucking they, justice in the world. They have missed a trick. They have that. really missed a trick if they don't do that. So but if, if, in, if on any given page you do not find one of the following, <laughs> then um, you... Surprise. I am utterly shocked. Um, she will either be biting her lip, uh, rolling her eyes, saying, holy shit. Occasionally it goes into holy crap or holy fuck, but usually it's holy shit uh, in italics. Turning. Oh, go ahead. Or mentioning that she's that there's something about her that's less than perfect or wanting to run her fingers through Christian's hair. That's a big one. Oh, the trousers hanging up his head. <laughs> Yes. Jeans, whatever this guy wears, they hang perfectly off his hips. That's not what trousers do, honey. If they do, they're not stitched up right. I mean, if they do, you need a belt. Yes. <laughs> oh, my. And, and she refers to him as so incredibly good looking that after a while I started hearing this like flipping Zoolander. It was just. There's, there is a there is a website somewhere that gives you guidelines on how to write terrible fan fiction. Here's all the things that you need to avoid if you don't want your work to be bland, boring, ridiculously dull, and utterly off-putting to anybody who picks it up. And she ticks every fucking box they've got on that page. Do you guys know what a Mary Sue is? I was just about to say, this has the Mary Sue issue real bad. Shortly after Digital Drift was first created, we got to interview two guys from one of our favourite podcasts of all time, Andrew Jupin and Eric Siska from We Hate Movies. Okay, Sharon, do you want to go for the five questions then? Right, okay. A nice simple one to start with, hopefully. Um, what would you choose as your last meal and movie? Uh, now, am I being stranded on a desert island or executed? I think you'd be executed. Let's <laughs> yeah. go full dark on this. <laughs> oh, this is man, literally the last of your is life. It, yeah, it's, it's the final. Or maybe, let's just say the world's ending. How about that? Oh, the world's ending. Okay. Um, it's not just you. For me, personally, then, uh, I would watch uh, a super nice Blu-ray of Alfred Hitchcock's North by Northwest with a, a gigantic pile of uh, chicken wings in front of me. <laughs> That's you know, exactly I, how I intended it. <laughs> I'm going to do the same thing, but with Blade Runner. <laughs> with also chicken wings. Yeah. That okay. works. Which cut? Uh, you know, I like the final. Yeah, me too. Good stuff. If Doc Brown turned up in the DeLorean and offered to take you anywhere you wanted to go, where and when would you go and how long would you stay there? Okay, I'm going to go to 1980 California suburb, and I'm staying forever, man. <laughs> really? <laughs> You just want to go to the I, 80s yeah. again. Well, think about this. You know, I could go, you know, I, right, right off the bat, boom, I could go see Empire in the theater. You know, and then also, you know, I'm probably some kick-ass arcades. <laughs> you know, the tunes aren't bad, you know, and then sure. and my, fun my funeral would probably be now around 2014. <laughs> <laughs> it would either be now or you've been long dead. Yeah. One yeah. or the other. Yeah. You know, it's either works. You would definitely have been the coolest person in the 80s because you'd have just have been so so good at predicting trends. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'd put all my money in Microsoft. <laughs> and Apple. 
Oh, bloody hell. Yes, yes, of course. I diversify that portfolio. Oh, no one should do that. That's taking advantage of it. Okay, so... Yeah, the time cops are going to get me, man. <laughs> and they're going to at least make you touch an alternate version of yourself so that you both go all gooey. Like I don't even want to touch the real version of myself. <laughs> okay, um... Sorry, same question. Oh, okay. Um, let's see. So I would go to late 70s New York City uh, for, for one reason, and it's the scum. To get uh, murdered. No, <laughs> no uh, I would go... And kill the Somerset. I, <laughs> I would love to go to uh, mid to late 70s New York City because of the music scene. If I had the opportunity to be seeing bands like the Ramones and television and talking heads uh, and Blondie live when they were really just starting out uh, at CBGB's just shouting uh, at all the kids. I appreciate this in ways you'll never will. Oh, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I, hey, really... I know how all these people die. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That is a, a super, it's an era of music that I'm super, super connected to. So I think, and also, you know, you can, you can say what you want about how safe the city is now and stuff. And, you know, I don't have any complaints, uh, at how safe it is, but, uh, you know, we really are living in this kind of, uh, Disney-fied, uh, Mickey Mouse version of this town. And, you know, I've been living here for the better part of a decade and, uh, I mean, we all have. And it's just, uh, each, each year we see, we see more and more things being torn down in favor of new shiny mirrored glass buildings and it's unfortunate. Yeah. I would stay till I was inevitably, you know, murdered uh, down in the Bowery somewhere. Oh yeah, that coming out of a coming out of a Talking Heads Blondie double bill, probably. <laughs> At least you die happy. Exactly. I just saw a great concert. Now I'm going to get stabbed to death with a bottle. It's fine. <laughs> okay. Uh, so, if you could give anybody in the world a superpower of your choice, who would it be, and what would it be? Uh, immortality for this guy right here, me. <laughs> See, we changed it to who would it be? Because just like, what would you have as a superpower? Everyone tends to go for something which makes them totally badass. But we like the idea of being able to uh, diversify this and go, well, no, no, give it to someone who's maybe more important than yourself and see what they can do with it. <laughs> more, more important than myself. There is no such person <laughs> exists. Here, I'll, I'll even the playing field. Highlander rules. You take my head, you got it. <laughs> Highlander one rules. Okay. Who would, uh, who would I give a superpower to and what would it be? Um, you know, I would probably have to go the immortality route, but I would give it to Alfred Hitchcock. I want to see what movies he would have, uh, continued making past his 1980 renal failure. Uh, that's what killed him. Uh, yeah, I don't know. Either that or how about this? I would give the gift of muteness to, uh, I don't know, someone like Donald Trump. Oh, <laughs> shut that trap forever. That's, That's good. a superpower there. On that, you know, invisibility to Shia LaBeouf. So would... Permanent hun- invisibility. Would 115-year-old Sir Alfred Hitchcock, KBE, still be doing movies now? You think? Or would he go, I am so tired of this. Sometime in the 90s. He would he would be one of those guys that's constantly saying he's so tired of this, but he wouldn't be able to stay away from the game. Of course, and he's immortal, so he can never just hang up his coat. No, definitely not. He he has to keep making movies for me. If you can keep making movies like Frenzy, which is one of his last films, mm-hmm. 
Uh, I'm all on board. Nice. Within the entertainment that you choose for yourself, are there any recurring themes that you seem to keep going back to over and over again? Like 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 movies we personally watch on our on our own. Yeah, yeah, some, yeah. something movies that you choose. Would, yeah, that, um, that you would choose to watch, not just to shred. <laughs> I, I I think and the, this kind of uh, is par- parallel to shredding, but I I love watching action flicks. I don't know, it's just something I grew up with. As long as there's chicken wings. Yeah, that, <laughs> you know the great thing. Uh, Alex, is that uh, it's America, so there's always chicken wings. <laughs> of course. We don't know uh, what does. <laughs> I would, uh, um, okay, so, so media that I enjoy, uh, when I'm not doing this show. I tend to watch a lot of horror movies. Mm-hmm. Um, it's what I wrote my thesis on at school. It's kind of the genre that I was able to kind of jump into as a kid and realize, uh, wow, you know, Within this kind of umbrella title, uh, there's all these different subgenres and stuff like that. So that was the first kind of uh, instance of, of things where I was doing that with. I would also say that, uh, you know, one of my weird kind of guilty pleasures is I'm kind of I'm, I'm looking on my my DVD shelf uh, right now. But I, I do like watching uh, avant-garde art films. So things like Stan Brackage and Hollis Frampton and, and stuff like that. I also kind of get a kick out of for completely different reasons than watching horror movies. But, yeah. uh, yeah, the, the, those are the two in my off WHM hours. That's genres. Let's go just a smidge deeper on this. Let's go back to action movies. Which kind of action movies, Eric? Is it like the guy who wanders into town and he just wants to have a drink, but people won't stop messing with him, and eventually there's a big bar fight, and then eventually the whole town's gas works explodes because he shoots everybody? Yeah, those are those are great. Um, After he exposes just, corruption, maybe a uh, sci-fi. You know, throw a cyborg in there. This guy's happy. Okay. <laughs> so yeah, okay, themes of cyborgs and uh, and sci-fi and and just particularly sort of macho yeah. testosterone kind of. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Cool. When, when when bones are replaced by metal. Yeah, and also for, I'm, I'm getting from this that they they would not necessarily have to be particularly high budget either. Oh no no the, the less is more. Gotcha. Cool. <laughs> Okay, uh, and Andrew, um, uh, themes specifically in ho- within horror movies are particular recurring things like slashes or monsters or zombies or what? Oh, uh, I'm well. I will say definitely not zombies. I'm totally Sick done with that whole thing. We, as a film-going society, have ruined zombies for everyone. I think and vampires and vampires. Oh, yeah, I mean, I actually. I think I, I tweeted this the other day, but it just a, a random thought I had of like, remember when there was like 15 zombie movies yeah. and that's like all you had to work with? Like those were the fucking days with zombie movies. Now it's like zombies versus Cockneys, zombies versus Abraham Lincoln. So who can possibly give a shit about these things? But, you know, that's actually it's the problem with I mean, that's more of a. a conversation about the greater problem of uh you know it's really easy for people to make movies nowadays mm. and uh you know hey man i bought this great looking uh, dslr camera let's go make a zombie movie isn't yeah. it going to be great and it's always terrible um so definitely not zombies but yes i would say actually i can pin this down really easily uh we can we can zoom in on the 1980s and we can zoom in on slasher films mm. anything around there uh, I have a super nostalgia 
uh, for the 1980s and any time a movie like that in it's it can actually jump out of slasher we did a movie on uh, the great film chopping mall um which is you know much like eric his love of robots uh, mm-hmm. it's robots low are, budget so, robot fighting yeah low budget robot fighting and it's also <laughs> mixed into a, a slasher film is fantastic there's a there's a great uh low budget 1980s sort of sci-fi horror film called night of the comet Hmm. Which is just like uber 80s nostalgia, mall nostalgia, specifically Ooh. shopping mall nostalgia. I'm a real sucker for it, to to narrow that down just a little farther. That uh, so, is yeah. pretty narrow, yeah. Yeah. Actually, further to your zombie thing, now that I think about it, um, Scream and Shaun of the Dead both did the same thing in that they made it pretty much impossible to do slasher films and zombie movies straight again. Yes. And yet, in doing so, because they were so popular and came out of nowhere, just revived interest a in it. Slew of sudden, like, hey, we can do this shit too. I think, was it you guys who were talking about how Dimension films? If you looked at all the covers of Dimension films, they're all pretty much the same. A bunch of teenagers looking sideways at you with light behind them. Oh yeah, that's totally that was Dimension Films bag for like ten years, and that's all off of the Scream cover. But you can take it from Scream all the way through whatever that dumbass Wes Craven werewolf movie was, you know, cursed, uh, you know. But it's it's totally true. They both uh, ruined and sort of enabled the genres at the same time. Yeah. I mean, the the amount of movies. Shaun of the Dead specifically inspired, uh, yeah, and that movie was like what, 2005 or four or something like that. I mean, the amount of zombie movies that have come out, and you can just see this, uh, you know, I know the, the UK new Netflix setup is a little different than ours yeah. title wise, but, uh, you know, I just look through the horror section on Netflix and it's just wretched piece of low budget <laughs> shit after another and it's it's horrible because nobody wants to watch these movies and that wasn't the fucking reason people went to see and enjoyed Shaun of the Dead it wasn't that it was a wretched low budget piece of shit it's that you actually cared about the characters and it made you laugh oh exactly and that's I mean that's the thing that those guys have done so perfectly you know in this uh, Cornetto trilogy Mm -hmm. I guess people are calling it but every one of those movies has that a really incredible uh, you know, wholehearted human reaction relationship to it. Uh, and they, they do it so well. I actually thought it was kind of done the best in, in the world's end, honestly. Um, uh, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, for what that movie was saying and doing, I think people kind of repurposed it or bastardized the message of that movie with, uh, oh, hey man, I have $10,000. Let's go make a zombie movie. And then somehow somebody is getting it on Netflix, which is still the biggest mystery (laughs) is how these movies are getting made and then streaming on Netflix, being put on the sci-fi channel. You know, I don't, it's the death of indie cinema because now I'm never going to want to watch anything independently financed. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. I saw a zombie movie, uh, that actually boasted on the back that it cost 40 pounds on the back of the DVD. Uh, I think it's called Colin or it's, it's someone's name. It was rubbish. And I think the DVD was like 14 pounds in, in, the supermarket. So it was like, so, you just sell so three they, copies of these and you broke it even already. Yeah, they made a great profit. God. But, uh, yeah, it, it sucked. It was this awful kind of drama group crap. It was, it, it as you say, yeah, anybody can make a, a zombie film. The question is, should they? The answer is no. Yeah. It's um, over with. If, if George Romero 
can't even make good ones anymore. Mm. The rest of y'all can stop making them. See also Wes Craven. Yes. Um, Which technological development do you most want to occur within your lifetime? Whoa. Hmm. Uh, well, I will go the route of the huge Star Trek fan and say that the, uh, the betterment of space travel is, I hope, something we, uh, at least start to pretend that we care about anymore, uh, in this world. Uh, you know, because I think it's growing, uh, clearer and clearer that this planet is not going to be around forever. And if we have, any desire at all to keep this race of human beings going. Uh, we have to stop kidding ourselves that, you know, we're not going to have to look beyond the moon for that. So I think space exploration, studying, mm. studying space, uh, and eventually traveling, uh, through space is something I, I mean, I don't think it's going to happen in my or our lifetime, unfortunately. But uh, I really think it's something that we should be considering because it's incredibly important. I'm gonna I'm gonna go with sort sort of similar. I'm gonna do Star Trek as well, but the holodeck. <laughs> also good. I you know come on. When, when one of them we get to explore outer space, meet new cultures. The other one we get to stay home and fuck green women. Well, yes. yeah, yeah. You know, what's Grand Theft Auto <laughs> Twenty Nine comes out on the holodeck, man. Whew, you know, <laughs> you could finally visit 1970s New York and murder a lot of people. Imagine That's how you're, you're actually straight up upsetting it will be to murder people with your bare hands in the hollow deck. Uh, yeah, I mean, you know, it, it's probably for me. It might not, but there's only one way to find out. <laughs> Just make it so. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. So yeah, uh, space travel. We're not going to meet the Baku without it. Very, very, very true. Good answers. Thank you, guys. Shortly after that, we were amazingly lucky enough to be able to get on Rihanna Pratchett, daughter of Terry, writer of, amongst other things, Overlord, Heavenly Sword, Mirror's Edge, and Tomb Raider. Once again, as with pretty much everyone we managed to get on the show, Rihanna was wonderful to talk to. Just as an aside, I've noticed that there are, in most of your top projects, I'm not sure about Overlord, I've not played it, I'm so sorry, uh, Heavenly Sword, Mirror's Edge and Tomb Raider, strong, central, two female narratives going on where it's kind of a sisterly relationship, well, definitely obvious sisterly in, in terms of uh, Faith and Kate. Well, it, it's very complex in terms of Noriko and Kite. That really doesn't happen in games all that much. It doesn't happen in films all that much. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's sort of... Um, it is quite rare. And that... that you know, I, I, I've just started Brothers, um, which uh, looks like it's going to be really, really interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it is weird that, that actually I've worked on a lot of games with sisters in because I'm an only child. And so for some reason, I always end up working with sister games. So, um, yeah, Faith and Kate and Nariko and Kai had a sort of adopted. They were, uh, Kai was the uh, Nariko's adopted sister. Yeah. And even even in the Overlord games, there is a sister. Uh, the sisters in there as well. Nice. I don't know how it happens. It just it just seems to. Um, I think it's. I think the industry is, is sort of moving a little bit towards um, exploring relationships that are not about boy girl love. Yeah. Um, which which tended to be that if it was about love, it was boy girl love. That was it. And um, I think we games. Yeah, there's been a move as male game designers grow up and have kids to have more paternal um, relationships depicted. Whether that is 
in Bioshock Infinite or in Last of uh, Us. Last of Us yeah. or uh, I'm trying to think. Oh, what were the other good examples of that? Well, I guess uh, Bioshock Two as well had a sort of paternalistic angle to it as well. So I think that, you know, I think as the industry matures in terms of storytelling, they are looking at for different ways of cap, you know tapping into to the kind of emotions that unite us really and the commonality of mankind, and that it's just not you know that we can do things that are not necessarily about boy girl love, but it can be familial relationships and the the, uh, the difficulties and traumas and wonderfulness of that. Uh, and you know, certainly that was the the particularly the relationship between well, I, I guess between Faith and Kate and and between um, uh, Laura and Sam. Um, yeah, there's been a lot. There's been a lot talked about the relationship between Laura and Sam, and and um, I know Gail's been been doing a little bit more about it in the comics. Um, but yeah, you know, just sort of female friendships depi- depicting that on. Uh, in games is quite rare as well, um, and again, it, it's, it gets rare in movies. You know, stories about women and are, are you know, it's sadly in the minority. Um, and you know, I've been very lucky to be able to work on the, the games I have. I've not necessarily gone out there going, I must find projects with with female leads. I've just they've sort of found me for, for very different reasons and through very different routes. Um, but I don't. I, I don't think there's any other games writer that has worked, male or female, that has worked on three different female-led titles. Yeah. Don't can't can't think of any. Let's bring two. Um, so then um, that's pretty cool. Uh, I've I've got the the covers of Edge with Lara, Nuriko, and Faith on that my my fiance got. Nice. Uh, framed for me at Christmas, and I looked at that and thought, yeah, that, that's kind of cool. I like that. Um, but yeah, it's just explore, exploring different relationships, and, and you know that's what we kind of need to do. Otherwise, it's just going to become boring. And if you look at things like Gone Home, for example, there's so much more we can do than it's just than just what has been traditionally done in the past. The sort of you know boy girl love or, 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 or sort of mid twenties white gravelly voiced um, Johnny Template, I call him. Yeah, yeah or I call him um, uh, Whitey McStubbly Face. That's pretty much the same guy. Yes, I, I know him well. Um, and it's uh, yeah, the industry seems to be slowly moving away from that. Um, but it's still but he's our life raft. We can't let go of Whitey McStubbly face. Yeah, um, and yeah, we we kind of talk a lot about how female characters are, are um, so poorly represented. But if you look at minority characters, mm. they're, they're, oh, it's God, yeah. even worse. Um, and that get doesn't get the the kind of um, time that you know the, the scu- and time and discussion that, that female characters do, and they, I, I know um, there's been there's a great talk. Uh, I think it's Manvia um, at uh, GDC. They have a great talk about uh, you know rep- better representation in games, and you know that's something actually Bioware has been very good at. Uh, so I, I think hopefully we'll see that more. I mean. You, you, I'm sure you probably saw the the old um, Penny Arcade report mm-hmm. uh, story about how female-led games don't sell as well, but then they don't get as marketed as well either. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, Tomb Raider has now sold over six million copies in a year, so I think that's starting to disprove that, that you know it's they can't be big sellers and they don't appeal to 
uh, men because you know uh, that we've had great feedback from back from both male and female gamers on on Tomb Raider. So um, it's kind of it, it's ludicrous that we're at a stage where the developers for Remember Me had such a hard time putting a female protagonist in their game and got told that you know they couldn't do that. Oh, that's Capcom. Uh, yeah. And, and likewise, kind of Elizabeth being relegated to the back of Infinite's box and things like that, and which is why it was so cool to see Ellie up front on on the Last of Us. Mm. In fact, even in front of of Joel as well. Um, and it, it's weird that those things are, are still an issue for us. It makes our industry come across as very archaic and slightly Victorian. <laughs> yes. The movie analysis shows continued, and. We did a whole run of Spider-Man shows. And the episode on Spider-Man 3, I started asking, why didn't the people around Harry try to tell him more clearly your dad, the Green Goblin, was something of a bad egg? Uh, Harry, who wants to destroy Spider-Man slash Peter, but in a way that sort of veers back and forth. Um, when he finally really gets his... Uh, his hate on for Peter. At the beginning, when he attacks Peter uh, as a goblin, it seems like he straight out wants to kill him. He's beaten the living shit out of him. He wants to destroy him. Then later on, he wants to attack his heart. And then when they actually fight, he's like, I'm going to kick your ass. And it's like, wow, the, his threat is actually diminishing as as, as time goes on. And it, it almost becomes like he's more and more aware of, uh, of how what little evidence he has against Spider-Man for any of his woes. But again, this seems more like complications and not really wanting Harry to be totally reprehensible. If I may, sir, I've seen things in this house I've never spoken of. What are you trying to tell me? The night your father died, I I cleaned his wound. The blade that pierced his body came from his glider. And? Well, well I mean, he probably killed himself with it. What, he stabbed himself? Possibly. You know how hard it is to maneuver that thing? It weighs like 170 pounds. What are you saying? I know you're trying to defend your father's honor, but there is no question that he died by his own hand. His own hand? Suicide, sir, obviously. You're saying he impaled himself on purpose? I had a fight with Spider-Man two days ago in which he threw my glider at me. Then he hurled a fragmentation grenade in my face and left me for dead. I mean, sorry to judge a man by his actions, but your butler CSI proves nothing. Well, supposing it was an accident or something. I mean, Spider-Man really does seem to be rather a nice fellow. It would be very out of character, and your father was on that news footage disintegrating the board members of Oscorp at the parade. You were there, sir. Yes, I was there. I nearly died. And throwing that cable car full of children and that young lady friend of yours off the George Washington Bridge. I mean, it's not exactly rocket science, if I may say so, sir. No, you may not say. The man was clearly a murderous nutter, sir. I'm frankly surprised you still can't see it. Okay, maybe he was crazy. I mean, that footage is pretty incriminating. But you tell me this now, after three goddamn years? Why don't you tell me before? It was just invigorating to see you enthused about something for the change. I've spent all this time hating Spider-Man for no reason. My face now looks like someone tried to put out a forest fire with a screwdriver. Oh, not at all, sir. You can still turn heads. This is not appropriate behavior for a butler! I'm sorry, sir. I loved your father. As I've loved you, Harry. As your friends love you. You're an asshole, Bernard. Very good, sir. 
Shall I fetch your flying snowboard? Well, obviously. Harry, Mallory, Osborne, where are you going? I'm going out, Mother. To see those no-account friends of yours, no doubt. You want me to bring you back some more vodka? Magnum Grey Goose. That's like the tenth most expensive vodka in the world. It's like 800 bucks a bottle. And some oysters. Bernard and I are celebrating tonight, if you know what I mean. I certainly do. Oh, God. Laying it out like that, I, I am even more convinced now that they had all three scriptwriters go away and write a separate story. Mm. Um, a villain each. One of the most requested clips coming up here. Um, people tend to quite like my food metaphors, but, uh, I mean, you know, it it works. Because I think, ultimately, films are things you put into yourself. They, you put them into your brain, and they stick around for far longer than for heaters. Welcome to Michael Bay's Transformers. Now, I made many bullet points last night watching this film. One list of good, it's shorter, and one of bad, it's longer. It actually makes the most sense to get the good out of the way first, though it is enmeshed with the bad. Watching the film feels like having to eat a bucket of cheap, non-dairy frozen dessert. You start off thinking it's going to be just like ice cream, and for a while you're okay that it's not exactly. Every so often you'll find a peanut butter cup, but you have to eat a lot of artificial mush to get to it, and by the halfway mark you're glancing into the bucket and it's all melty and warm and you're starting to feel really sick, but you just have to keep eating it and then Michael Bay takes your spoon away so you have to put your face into the bucket to finish it off and you're drowning in this awful syrupy gloop and you can't see and you can't hear or feel or taste or think and you just want it to be over so you can die <laughs> Sharon, is this the worst live action Transformers movie? Ahem <clears throat> This is the best live-action Transformers movie. <laughs> this next one's a treat for those who haven't heard it yet. Uh, I guessed it um, on three shows of That Awful Sound. This was when I was on episode 18. It's a podcast all about music, and it's uh, hosted by Alexander Edwards, and I suggest you all start listening, because it is ace. But when Alex had me on, we talked about movies, and uh, the music that tied in with these movies, and it was... Um, for City of Angels, and it was Iris by the Goo Goo Dolls that we discussed, the music video. But you get to hear me do a lot of Nick Cage impressions, and this is the section where we talked a lot about the film. Such fun, this show. Hello and welcome to That Awful Sound. My name is Alexander Edward, and I am your host, and this is the show where we talk about the music we liked before we knew any better, the music we always knew better than to like, and if there's time, some music we still kind of like. Please enjoy episode 18, I've Been a Bad, Bad Angel. Oh, wow. You're the closest to heaven that I'll ever be because I guess angels aren't allowed in heaven. I don't know about I don't know where that falls into it. Um, I have been seriously misinformed about angels. Yeah, they they're pretty liberal with with their their origin story of the angel. I mean, I guess the angels are a separate race in in the Bible. Well, I mean, really, this, these these guys, if they're no one, not allowed near heaven, they're just basically a group of earthbound deaths 
from the the Discworld novels. Uh, God rest Terry Pratchett's wonderful soul. Yeah, um, rest so it's peace. like it's like Santa Claus has all those helpers around the world to get the kids the various presents. There's just a lot of deaths knocking about, so that they can tend to everyone who's about to die. Nick Cage's specialty is the death, is being the angel of death. Not oh, quite right. the angel of death, but being the death escort. Um, so where what other angels are there? Angels of sickness? Angels of hungriness? They're just they're just like guardian angels because it shows them whispering into tower control uh, workers' ears, like convincing them not to fuck everything up and crash planes <laughs> all day. Like that's Don't what this crash planes. <laughs> yeah. Hey, I, I know you're thinking about shooting up this place. But don't. Just give it one more day. So that's going to probably be a terribly bad taste joke that's going to end up being terribly ill-timed after another shooting. But that, yeah, you, that, you, the implication is basically that they're whispering to people. Yeah, no, that, that's exactly what they're doing. Throughout. That's what this movie postulates is, is that everybody would be killing everybody or dying in a horrible accident if these angels weren't roving the streets in packs, constantly whispering into everybody's ear. And It's sweet. But it's creepy as hell as well. It's creepy as hell, and it totally and it kind of negates the idea of free will that the Bible mm. spends so much time harping on. And it makes us seem like a bunch of idiots who can't be trusted. Yeah, precisely. Uh, and and not only do they whisper into our ears, but they they also read our thoughts. And so the the, the place that they like to hang out the most at is the <laughs> library. And there's a few awkward scenes in so a library. So they've got less and less places to hang out every year, basically. Yeah. Do you, do you come here a lot? I live here. What do you do? Read. No, I mean you work. Oh, I'm a messenger. Oh. Well, what kind of messenger? Like a bike messenger? No, I'm a messenger of God. Got a message for me? I already gave it to you. Well, did you use my pager? Because I usually don't get my messages unless you beep me. You've definitely been beeped. It's it, basically we get a couple like uh, moving shots through this library while Nick Cage is strolling through. And it's just this horrific, creepy, cultish scene where... Everybody is reading to themselves. The humans are reading to themselves mm -hmm. and each human has an angel right next to him or her with his or the angel's ear pressed up against the head of oh. the person who's reading to themselves just to hear their thoughts reading. to. And I thought it was going <laughs> and I thought it was going to be something like. I mean, that, that's creepy. There's no there's no way to pass that off as not being creepy. But I thought it was going to be something like, oh, they can't touch a book. They can't pick up a book and and read it themselves. So they have to like they wouldn't be able to turn the page because they can't interact with the world on a physical. I'm assuming they can go to the movies. <laughs> yeah, no but... thought reading required. It's all right there for you. But I mean, aren't you know over in two hours, less time intensive. You can then carry on helping people who are about to die. But literature, man, you got to get the richness of of mm. literature uh, and, and invading other people's ability. Like everyone reads in a different way. And it's like, yeah, I, I like the way this person reads. I'm going to have my own personal unbidden audio book. Exa exactly. Like each of these angels picks their favorite. Like they pick their favorite person to just. You're going to be my reader. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. But but later on in, in the in the movie, Nick Cage leaves a book 
on uh, Meg Ryan's nightstand at home. So he can clearly touch this book and pick up physical objects. So this whole idea that he's not allowed to touch her or that he can't feel anything is... It's totally bullshit. Like, it makes no logical sense within the movie. He says there's a scene. One of the, the best scene in the movie, in my opinion, is they finally kiss. And it's and it's this this moment that's been building to where she knows that something's off about him. He hasn't mm-hmm. he hasn't told her that he's an angel yet, but she knows that he's keeping a secret. And so they kiss and she says, you felt it. Not the way you do. Yeah, I do. What, what does that mean? You mean the way a, a doctor does? The way a woman does? What? The way a human does. I have no sense of touch. And her first reaction without missing a beat is to slap him in the face. Because <laughs> when somebody tells you that they're not human, your first reaction is to slap them like they've goosed you. <laughs> Oh, sir, I am a proper lady. You must not be conjuring these mendacities with me. If, if somebody told me that they weren't human, my, my first reaction would be to put as much distance between them and mm. myself, not to reach in for a full-palmed slap. I've just remembered something about this film. I've just remembered. Okay, remember, uh, Nick Cage does give up forever to touch her. We're only on the first line. Um, and uh, he becomes human, and he falls, like, you have to fall as an angel, right? Right, yeah. And then he, like, gets up and goes, Hey, everybody, I'm human! Yeah, we know. <laughs> and then he's like, Right, now i got to go find Meg Ryan. Yeah. And he gets on a bus, and I think he ends up somehow in the worst part of town. Like, the crappiest, shitty, like, as a seedy rip joint car park and he's on a bench and he meets some guys and he's like oh hey fellas how's it going there and they beat the crap out of him and steal his shoes he's like yeah. oh being humans maybe not as good as it was cracked up to be and that place i sat and stared at it and went oh fuck me i've been there really not metaphorically i have literally been there my father Took me and my sister to Los Angeles to to see it, and it you know great time, great trip. But uh, he's uh, was a skin flint back then, and probably still is now. Um, he chose of all places the motel across the street from that fucking strip joint. <laughs> so I have sat on that bench and nearly been, had been mugged for my shoes by wow. four fictional characters. I'm sure. Um, see, that's yeah. that's not the kind of thing you're going to see on Star Tours. Yeah, they, they, they actually said, okay, we need you to f- go find a location, like just, just someplace that says nasty. And um, they went, well, we've got a Venn diagram here of places that Alex Shaw's father will stay in L.A. and places that are nasty and there's a perfect circle. And we're going to go there for Nick Cage's mugging scene. So, yeah, that's my claim to fame. That's great. I would, I would give up forever to have been there to, <laughs> to touch that park bench. Don't don't go in the swimming pool in that motel, folks. Just so you know. I also really like your Nick Cage impression. <laughs> well, <laughs> that's that's better than I, as an American, could do. That impression will be employed repeatedly during our Ghost Rider review. I'm sure <laughs> it's coming up, folks. So the next lyric: I don't want the world to see me, or and I don't want the world to see me, and because I don't think that they'd understand. Uh, so he has to choose to let Meg Ryan see him and then you bleed just to know your life. So that scene where 
he falls like mm. you said mm. he has to it's the fall is like a uh physical manifestation of yeah. his act of choosing humanity choosing to be human so he has to like literally fall off of a building it's not a, it's not a metaphor it's like a real thing he has to literally fall off of a building to choose to be human and he wakes up on this construction site mm. and uh there's a bunch of construction workers just standing like when I say a bunch, I mean like dozens of construction <laughs> workers that are hanging off sca or standing on scaffolding or positioned around him laughing at him like this guy is laying there and it's in the middle of the day. So so you and that bum that, just fell off a building. <laughs> well, Check this guy out. Well, he falls off at night and then he wakes up in the middle of the day and he wakes oh, up right, right. and they're surrounded laughing at him, like just laughing at this presumable corpse. Hey, Joey, look at this vagrant. <laughs> yeah, look at this. Oh, oh, he's still alive. Look at this dead guy that's going to set back this project for another two months. Yeah. You know, and questions. And he's so he's bleeding. And that's like his first indication that, that his choice has worked. And he licks the blood off of his fingers, actually. Mm. And then he's all the uh, construction workers are just yelling and jeering at him and like, wakey, wakey. It's it's very weird. <laughs> and um, he goes, he says, is this blood? He's yelling at him. And a construction worker with one line played by a shaven Nick Offerman. Shaven in, Nick Offerman. <laughs> yes. Says, is it red? Is this blood? This is blood. Is it red? Red. Is it red? Color. What color would it dwell you to? Because I guess he's 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 been seeing in black and white up until this point. Oh, seriously? I, I I mean that's this whole like weird vague description of these angels is that they can't feel, they can't see in color, they can't taste. You like Hemingway? Yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. Starting to. As I ate the oysters with their strong taste of the sea and their faint metallic taste, as I drank their cold liquid from each shell and washed it down with the crisp taste of the wine. I lost the empty feeling and began to be happy. He never forgets to describe how things taste. I like that. But it's obviously not well developed because how would you, how would you get about daily life without being able to feel? Like, well, yeah, you, you wouldn't be able to walk. You wouldn't be able to pick up a book. You wouldn't be able to do. Have you ever tried to walk with your legs numb? I mean, that's the that's what they're saying. Nick Cage is doing this whole time and every angel is doing. It is important to say, by the way, that this is based on a film um, by directed by Vin Vendors called Wings of Desire. Um, I think let me just. Yeah, it's got Peter Falk in it. I'm assuming he's the Dennis Franz guy, um, but yeah, he's the, he, he's the one guiding, guiding your, your Nick Cage character around the French version of, uh, of City of Angels. Uh, gotcha. and, and you'll probably have some Wings of Desire fans going, oh yeah, that's, that's way better than the uh, remake. Um, I'd, I'd probably kind of like to watch it, but I don't think it's going to be less creepy. Yeah, it just seems to be overall a pretty creepy presentation. Uh premise because it's this it's this angel figure with immense power and ability to just stalk a woman at every moment in her life without her knowing yeah. that he's there so yeah you can't it's very hard to turn that into like a, a nicholas sparks movie which is what this movie is it's like this movie is like half seven and half nicholas sparks 
Yeah. Because like it's... It, go ahead. No, no, it's, 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 yeah, love without the other person knowing about it. It, it can't fail to be creepy. Right, like, and, it's, and it's just this weird, like, cultish, religious overtones of all these angels in trench coats, because all the angels wear trench coats in this movie. Yeah. These, these dark, uh, ominous figures littered throughout the city, following people left and right, standing on, on uh, billboards and watching. You know, it's, it's, it's like... Yeah, just hanging around watching you on the beach, and you're like, you right. know, they're, they're swimming in the sea, and you're like, I wish I could swim in the sea and feel what that's like. Let's watch him, shall we? Yeah, very, very strange. And so these lyrics, to tie that in with the lyrics, when everything's made to be broken, yeah, you bleed just to know you're alive. Like, those are the writings of a serial killer. <laughs> everything's made... I'm work on my woman's suit. It's okay. Everything's made to be broken. Like, that's, you know, like, that's that's a little kid, like, breaking his dog's arm because everything's just made to be broken anyway, right? My favorite line is, and you can't fight the tears that ain't coming. What What does that mean on any level? Uh, yeah, it, I don't... I, well, you can't try not to cry when you weren't going to cry in the first place, huh? Man, that's deep. Yeah, it's... it's Well, it's deep because it's a paradox. You know, you just... All you have to do is just insert a paradox into your lyrics and... I'm assuming his drummer went, dude, mind blown. <laughs> Or just humored him. I don't know. Yeah, well, see, the tears, that's another thing about... See, like like I was talking about the sensory... The sensory aspect of the movie. All these, all these lyrics have weird sensory words thrown in at, at odd times. And so I think that that's another one. You know, you, the tears that ain't coming, you can't cry because you're, you're not a physical being, but you mm. still can't fight them. Also, the line when everything feels like the movies, which is an, an immaculately teenage line, because when you're a teenager, you watch the kind of movies that allow you to co-opt that kind of movie style into your own life and go, wow, this is just like Romeo and Juliet. Or wow, this is just like Jerry Maguire, which, by the way, is still a fantastic bloody film. But uh, but yeah, it, it um, when you're a teenager, you feel those kind of things far more sharply and you slot things into place and carefully remove everything that doesn't fit in with that. Definitely. That's that's a that's a good point. Yeah, because everything's so profound. You know, when you're when you're a teenager, every everything is so meaningful and everything is is, uh, you know, uh, make or break moment like it would be in the movies. Um, I also took that. I also took that lyric as like everything feels like a movie. I think I think maybe what he's trying to say is that he's detached like everything feels like you're just watching a movie, but oh, I, really? I, I like I like your explanation too, though. I, I think that that's that's absolutely true. Is is you know when you're in love, everything feels like a movie moment. Yeah. Or according to this this song, that's what they're trying to say. The kind of melodrama you flood your life with at that age. But no, I, I, not to disparage teenagers, it's very important to feel that vital and alive, at least at one stage in your life, so that you can feed off it for the rest and go, man, I was a dickhead back then, but at least I felt something. Yeah, I'd give up forever to feel something, personally. <laughs> yeah, so back to, real quick, I hate to keep repeating myself, but yeah. No, so, no, so, carry on. You're the closest to heaven that I'll ever be, so, you know. Well, the, <laughs> <laughs> thank you. 
you. That's fine. I'm just going to sit and watch you for hours. There's one bit in the film which actually turned up in this WMV when, like, Meg Ryan's in the bath getting all sweaty and it cuts to, like, you know, it pans out and she goes all fuzzy because it goes into focus on Nick Cage sitting in a room that beside her going, Ugh! and he's practically going with his collar, nyang, nyang, nyang. Oh. That part I shouldn't is... be watching this. I'm such a bad angel. <laughs> <laughs> oh no, I'm doing it again. <laughs> that that part is is my There's second. rules, you know. We're supposed to give them their alone time. Yeah, what? Where are the rules? Where where is where is supervisors? Who's watching this guy? I think this guy is. But abusing... then his should be saying, "You know the rules. No sex, okay? When they're doing it, you gotta turn your eyes away. You gotta leave the room, okay? At least go to the next room." Yeah, or God, where's God in all of this? I I need I need a a gigantic arm to just reach down and grab Nick Cage by the scruff of his neck and yank him away and and just you know like like a little slap on the nose with a newspaper. You know, it would only makes sense if it's the god from monty python and the holy grail what are you doing nick cage just the one that looks down from the clouds just someone who's not going to take any of his shit yeah uh, but but that scene though is is perfect i posted that scene on my insta my personal instagram because yeah he's watching her bathe and he's listening to her thoughts and she's actually remembering meeting him because there is a there is a meet cute but it's more like a meat creep he's waiting, <laughs> he's, he's waiting in the hallway of her hospital after visiting hours. He's not going anywhere. He's not doing anything there. He's just standing in the hallway waiting for her. And she comes up on him. The lights are off. Nobody else is there. And she somehow finds him like attractive in this moment. She's not like calling security. I mean, I guess this was before nine 11. So, yeah. so maybe we were, we were, you know, we were a little more trusting back then, apparently, or at least Meg Ryan was because I would not, I would not feel comfortable even as a, you know, even as a man and another man, I would be like, what is this guy in this fucking trench coat doing here? We were one year away from Columbine. Yeah. You know, this, this is not cool. Um, so she's fantasizing about this meeting in, in the bathtub and oh, that's she's, why he's got, I haven't seen it in a while. That's why he's got, I'm a bad angel. I shouldn't be enjoying <laughs> this so much. Right. And she's, she's thinking about him in complete sentences because that's how we all think apparently. And she says his name and he hears her say his name and she's like rubbing a beer, a beer glass on her forehead while she's uh -huh. in this steamy bathtub. And yeah, it pans out to him in the other room sitting in a chair with his back to her and like <laughs> rolling his head like, oh, oh, that's hot. <laughs> Do it again. Uh, yeah, that's my second favorite scene in the movie. See, now we're into School of Movies territory, and our show on Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves had a section with a Guardian article highlighting this swashbuckler's many hysterical inaccuracies. Robin Hood is a legendary English outlaw, usually dated to the reign of Richard I or John in the late 12th or early 13th century. The gaffes start with the very first title card, which states that Richard the Lionheart led the Third Crusade to reclaim the Holy Land from the Turks. He'd have been a bit late. The Turks left a whole century earlier. 
1194, when this film is set, the Holy Land was under the control of the Saracens. Before you know it, Robin of Loxley has escaped a Turkish, or possibly Saracen, jail, uh, along with improbable Moorish sidekick Azim. They arrive back at Dover, where Robin cheerfully proclaims that it will take them until nightfall to walk to his father's castle. Even if you had a car... Dover to Loxley would take you five hours. Robin and Azim only have feet. And worse still, Robin takes the scenic route via Hadrian's Wall, a diversion of another 300 miles. Specifically on this one, by the way, it's 300 miles due north. You have to go past Nottingham to get to Hadrian's Wall from Dover. And go, here you go, Azim. This was Hadrian's Wall. Ah, it's very nice. Now let's go back the way we came. <laughs> Absolutely. It's doing a bit of sightseeing. I would know blindfold. I'm five miles from home. Bullshit. <laughs> Indeed. Okay, so uh, from geography, we move on to technology. Scanning the horizon, Azim notices one of the evil sheriff of Nottingham's men in the distance and whips out his telescope to have a closer look. Though the Islamic world was far ahead of Christian civilization in many aspects of science and technology, it wasn't ahead in telescopes, which were invented in the <laughs> Netherlands in 1608. Okay, but Azim is a very, very, very smart Moor. Well, yes, this is true. Yes. Maybe, they, maybe they came via... 17th century Holland, I don't know. In 1874, um, <laughs> by the way, this is the, the likelihood of surviving a caesarean section was about 15%. That was like, what, like 700 years later. So, Are you referring to the bit where he delivers Fanny's baby? And, and she the survived, The implication yeah. is that, mm-hmm. right, the fact that she's awake and not screaming her head off immediately after that immediately calls bullshit on that thing. Anyway. But that's only on the subject of Vazim being really, really clever. Yes, absolutely. Okay, so, dialogue. Robin biffs off to the forest to lead the outlaws, a bunch of merry men and the occasional woman who keeps shouting words such as bollocks and tosspot. These expressions were not in recorded use until the 18th and 16th century, respectively, but the screenplay is in modern rather than Middle English, so fair enough. I think that the usage of those was really just to emphasise its Englishness. They wanted to use English swearing. Um, I'm more concerned about the fact that little John and Fanny have West Country accents, despite the fact that they're supposed to have been born and raised in Nottinghamshire. But Hello, hey. my lover. <laughs> okay, um, so having bonded over anachronistic swearing, Robin and his band build a sort of Ewok village <laughs> in a bosky glade. It's literally the Ewok village. <laughs> the Ewok they village. Toy of the Ewok village to do the toy of this. Absolutely. And they improved the toy. <laughs> Complete with rope ladders, engineered lifts, mood lighting, canopy-level walkways, and a mosque for Azim. If medieval peasants, with nothing but the natural resources of the forest around them, could build this sort of thing, why did they mostly live in filthy huts made of sticks and manure? Because wattle and daub, it's, it's what's for dinner. Uh, well, indeed. And, and also, more to the point, why were they immediately before and until Robin turned up and showed them how to make rope ladders? You would think somebody could have figured it out by no, that point. I think point. Azim taught them because he's I was very, very smart. Maybe so, yeah. Obviously not Robin. It must have been Azim. <laughs> Absolutely. Not only did he bring with him telescopes, he brought architecture he's, as he's well. He's the smartest <laughs> guy in the world, basically. Absolutely. Right. Now, this is the one that really made me laugh because this was one of the ones that hadn't really occurred to me. Economics. The sheriff's scribe frets about the costs of, uh, cost of Robin's larceny. We reckon he's nicked three to four million in the last five months, sire. 
Bearing in mind that the exchequer receipts for all of England in 1194 came to £25,000. <laughs> this is impressive thievery. Even if the scribe is counting in pre-decimalisation pennies, Robin has somehow managed to steal more than the entire Crown revenue for five months, notionally equivalent to around £250 billion today. And put now, it in his treehouse without it collapsing. Keep it in his treehouse, yes. Now, admittedly, with Did you bring me here to brag? Yes. Yeah, <laughs> I totally did. No, these are my admittedly, etchings. With that sort of cash, Robin probably could have had as many canopy-level walkways as he wanted. But you'd think people would stop driving money carts through Sherwood Forest after the first billion or so. <laughs> it's the only route to London, you little... It's the only route to London. No, it's Fair. not! That's, that's also Where not true. Where are you coming from, if that's the only right, like, just uh, Everyone, folks, get, get a map of England, find Nottingham... <laughs> See how big Sherwood Forest really is. Just like, I mean, and then look at all that space on either side. It was, it was pretty big, but you could go round it. And if you were getting ripped off to that kind of level, mm. you would really, wouldn't you? Right. Okay. But they're trusting Warfare. on Americans' lack of understanding of British geography. Multiple times. Okay, warfare. The sheriff calls in the Scottish Celts to fight Robin. A load of big, hairy, dirty, woady savages turn up, looking like they've just arrived from the second century. Setting bits bits of themselves on fire for kicks. You wouldn't find any of this lot among the refined society of 12th century Franco-Gaelic Scotland unless they were going to a fancy dress party. Nice. Romance. The sheriff believes that marrying Lady Marion, the Lionheart's cousin, will give him a claim to the throne. In reality, the Lionheart didn't have any cousins on his English side, and even if he had, the sheriff would have had to contend with the King of Castile, the Duke of Saxony, the Duke of Brittany, and the Lionheart's own brother John, all of whom had a much stronger claim, as well as proper armies not made up of blatantly fake Celts a millennium past their unleash-by date. True. He obviously feels really strongly about this misrepresented Celts. This thing. is a world in which Prince John doesn't exist. Oh, by the yeah, way, sure. speaking of, during that interview, Morgan Freeman was like, oh, it's just a, it's a Robin Hood story, you know, Prince John wants the throne and the sheriff is his agent. And it's like, wow, which movie are you watching, Morgan Freeman? No one even says Prince John in the whole film. He's maybe that was a different this. script. Was Prince John in all of the deleted scenes? Was I playing maybe? a badger in this movie? <laughs> Okay, so um, Mr. Von Tutzelman's uh, verdict on this, Alan Rickman playing the sheriff seems to be the only person in Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, who has realised it's a pantomime. Yes. Consequently, he is hilarious and everything else in the film is terrible. <laughs> Cancel the kitchen scraps for lepers and orphans. No more merciful beheadings. And, and call off Christmas. After that was our show on a childhood favourite of mine, the almost entirely unseen animated fantasy film Flight of Dragons. And in this section, we talked about the four unintentionally ridiculous wizards. <laughs> Carolinus decides, look, this, like, magic's weakening. We've got to do something about this. He holds a meeting for his four brothers. And how does he communicate with these guys? Palantir? Owl. 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 Yeah, it's it's uh, it's what the wizards do to talk to each other. They tie a little message to the uh, leg of an owl and they send it off. And there's uh, there's three brothers. I, I know magic's um, like waning, but you think they would have found a better way to keep in contact with each other? Yeah, I mean, one of the owls, owls had to fly to China. <laughs> if, this, if this first like it takes place in like a medieval style England, that's a long way for an owl to fly. 
The other one had to fly to the sea. (laughs) Especially since they literally use magic balls to talk to each other. The rest, like crystal balls, at other points in the in the movie. It's just like, why wouldn't you use that to begin with? Yeah, and that crystal ball, by the way, is totally useless once you got Melisandre there to tell you everything. Of course. Uh, And can we, for a brief moment, talk about the introduction of these other three wizards, especially? Because uh, it, it loads in, it's just like, and the yellow wizard, Lotezal, the, the wielder of, and I'm just like, racism! Lotezal is your Commodore Garden wise old Chinaman, Confucius yeah. say, and he's all dressed in yellow and and is has very clearly Asian features and lives in clouds and has a beautiful Chinese dragon called Chinsu. Ah, oh, the Chinese firebolt. Ooh. Ooh. <laughs> uh, and then Solaris, the the blue wizard, is like, he bothered me too, but not because of like racist overtones, but just because he was just so like grandiose and like, I will call upon Neptune. And great serpents of the friends. Like, I, I almost imagine him himself. Yeah. Yes, exactly. I, like, I imagine like the four of them come around for like a like dinner, like a family gathering, and and uh, Caroline is just being like, "Oh Jesus Christ, this is why I smoke pipe weed," and <laughs> and the other three because it's I like you know, to a whale steak, yeah, yes, and I That's I gonna caught it myself, <laughs> and and you know it's just so weird. And then you get to the Forgot last one, Amadon. Sorry. And Amadon's just the downer brother who's just kind of like death and destruction. Yes, it's like, all right, go back to listen to your Marilyn Manson. Like, we're going to go over here and have a nice dinner. Like, yeah. Jesus Christ. Like, what a family. Solarius is this, you know, big, statuesque black wizard wearing blue robes. And he lives in the middle of the sea and clearly doesn't get out much because all the <laughs> no. people he talks to are dolphins. Um because yeah, like uh, he, he does repeatedly say throughout the the uh, early stage of the of the adventure, I shall bring you serpents from the sea. And Carolinas has to say to him, Yeah, but the quest is going to be on land. Once again, you're useless, hilarious. But um, <laughs> I but, shall call down a mighty comet that would defeat the purpose because you just destroy everything yeah. anyway. <laughs> you just destroy the whole earth. Yeah, also, course, yeah, his realm is not only the sea, but outer space. Yeah, I don't know how that, that currently. 99.99999% of everything. <laughs> is that not too much power for one wizard? You would think. Well, and that also kind of highlights another point that magic is supposed to be, like, leaking out of this world, and Carolinus can't even make, like, a water wheel disappear, and... How do you get rid of heartburn? Yeah, yeah, he can't even get rid of heartburn, and Lotezal's like... Lotezal. Like, what does he even do? Like, he calls once on the the telephone basically but then at one point like i, I you know i don't want to skip ahead but solarius has the power of life and death mm. is like i will bring you back to life it's just like oh yeah okay. he does as well that seems a little extreme there's i didn't realize char- that was also a part of the powers of the sea and outer space there is one <laughs> character who he definitely should have brought back to life but of course the fact that he doesn't makes that this ending so bittersweet Oh my god, right? Yeah. I, I, I think I if he feel had like it, it cheapened it, I think. It, yeah. It feels like the other three actually took domains and says I'll I'll just take everything else else oh. if that's okay. I'll take two thirds of the earth's surface and everything outside it. <laughs> <laughs> you do kind yeah. of 
you do kind of get that in Greek myth because um, after the fight mm-hmm. between the Titans um, and uh, Zeus and his brothers, it's like Zeus takes the earth, Poseidon takes the sea, and Hades gets stuck with what's left. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, yeah, speaking of which, of uh, Omadon, you know, the, the, the standard tropes uh, are followed up on. So you've got White Wizard, Black Wizard, Asian Wizard, Monster. Basically, <laughs> Omadon is a living monster, a giant, horny, old troll type thing um, you know, who's not even wearing a hat. He's like pulled his hat over his eyes like a giant pointed balaclava. It's insane. I, I will say there is something about the designs of the male noses in this <coughs> film that gets All to dick noses? <laughs> it's like, what you were thinking, right? What? What? It just... The random horn on his nose, like, it got to be a bit, like... You don't like my random horn. <laughs> Remember when I told you I love it when the usually placid Josh gets mad about something stupid? Well, Terminator 3 provided that. I, just just to cl- clarify my position on the film, I, I will agree with absolutely everything you say. <laughs> I think my, my go-to... I, I've, I've spoken to this in the past. Everyone has like a go-to negative emotion. Mm-hmm. For some people, that's anger. For me, it's just it might as well not exist in my head anymore. So when I say I'm apathetic towards it, it, it really means that I dislike it as much as you. It's just my response is very different for me it's like i've just cast it into the abyss in my own mind it might as well doesn't exist over the course of the episode josh's feelings on this matter evolved somewhat the tx as it's referred to t-sex yeah guys this this is uh like a classic example of a wouldn't it be cool if amalgamation and not actually having a you know not actually thinking about how all these different elements work and yes. serve the plot or serve characters or serve anything. The T-1000 was cool, but that was an enemy that was thought about how how it would work logistically within the plot. The T-1000 had a large body count, but even he had the sense to drag bodies into a cupboard and hide them to maintain a low profile. Bingo. The, it's just, it's insect. Like there's so many. Like she has, she has this uh, liquid metal. Oh, I love metal. it when you get angry. <laughs> she has this liquid metal skin that helps her blend in, but it doesn't have any of the beneficial qualities that the T1000 is. It's just so she can transform. That's no, like it doesn't give her the immortality of the T1000. It's just well, Terminator Two did that. We'll do that too because people thought that was cool. It's called the TX because apparently th- this guy is obsessed with the 90s and thinks putting X on the end of everything instantly makes it cool. Also, just... <laughs> it means she's the ticks. Yeah, oh, and that's... and just and you were talking about the whole like uh, boob inflation stuff. Like if that actually served <laughs> a purpose, if it's like if she was like this this robot that was able to perfectly mimic human behavior and her whole stick as it were was the manipulation of people and getting them to do what they she wants fine but she kills everyone she meets like she doesn't manipulate anyone it's just there so you can go for as you said alex and by it's- the way do the, does one policeman chase 
her. No, they're no. all after John and his Terminator buddy. It's really dumb. Yep. <laughs> it's just really, it's really dumb. dumb. I just, I, uh, the, to be honest, I have a problem with the concept of her technology integrating with past technology at all. Yeah. Like, like you're not going to plug a USB cable into an Atari anytime soon. So how is she <laughs> capable of doing all the stuff she does? Like, and. I, I mean, they they completely. It turns into a fantasy when she's controlling engines and stuff with that thing. Because oh, the pedal, yeah, oh, the pedal goes down. Yeah. Like an invisible foot is pushing on it. Yeah. When the Terminator turns up, John's like, "Oh my god, it's a fucking T one hundred one. He's come to kill me." No. Because he closely bonded with the T one hundred one. It's like the fucking Iron Giant coming back. He would actually be something along the lines of somewhat like conflicted. He would be slightly afraid, like, does this one want to kill me? But there would be hope in there, like, is it the same one? Is it a different one? Has he got his learning chip on? Can I repeat that pattern again? Can, you know, can I keep this one alive? Is he going to protect me? Like, he would be conflicted. Instead, he's like, oh, my God, he's coming to kill me. Which doesn't make sense when you find out the past of this Terminator because the the John Connor of the future was killed by this Terminator yep. because he allowed it to get too close. So for this John Connor in the past not to respond in that way conflicts with the the film's own story, like Sharon no, said already. Logic, yeah. It, it 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 betrays its own logic, not just the logic of the series. That scene is handled with the subtlety of a brick going through a window as well. I mean, I like the idea of this Terminator, as you say, using psychology. But did you have to spell it out so in such an obvious... Like, there's no... If it was just played out, okay, John is despairing, and then the Terminator slaps him out of it, he's angry, leaves him alone, and then they carry on, that would have been a good scene. But the fact that it's like, just in case the audience has no idea what's going on here, anger is more useful than despair. Like, none of us don't already know that. Like, it's just, again, treating the audience like morons. Keep going, keep going, Josh. Anger is better than apathy. I, I was going to say Evil Dead 2 is a great example mm. of something taking the, something that was really serious and then turning it into a comic, a darkly comic, but a comic film. Yeah. Uh, yeah, no, you could have you could have done a comedy and a good one, but like that's this film doesn't know what it wants to be. It's it's just it wants I, to I, be four hundred and eighty five million dollars. Well, I only stated four hundred and thirty. I'm happy to say. Oh, okay, I, sorry. I, I've <laughs> used this I've used this metaphor a lot of times to describe a lot of things, but it's only because I think it's a really good way of conveying films and, and projects like this. This film is a screwed up ball of masking tape that just has random shit stuck on it just oh that would be good oh that that's great as well and all you're left with is this giant ball of stickiness with random shit covering it covering it like none of it's cohesive none of it fits together it's not a it's not a it's a structure of any kind it's just a mass of stuff that somebody thought was cool but isn't it's not even a movie. This is a way of converting $187 million to $430 million. 
That's yeah. all it is, folks. It's an equation. Like, it's a mathematical equation that a bunch of men in a boardroom mm. came up with in order to maximize the amount of money they could make out of this franchise. Like, there, there is there is none of the passion and love and and just intelligence that went into the first two movies. Those two movies have a, a soul that is oh, yes. so, so... It, it 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 bleeds out of the screen and into you like you you feel its presence and here you are dealing with a hollow limping corpse of a film it's just it's uh, awkwardly funny but only in the most depressing way possible are <laughs> uh, you only laugh at it because it falls over and you're like oh god why oh this is just I don't want to, and you, part of you just wants to go over there and put this corpse of a film out of its misery <laughs> because it's just, it's just in pain. It's a writhing mass of just pointlessness, and there's nothing, there's nothing there that's keeping it alive. It's just, it, it's just alive for no reason. I, I, I'm going into a, this no, no, you're right. going nowhere. It's just a. A, it's a swirling, a swirling vortex of negativity. <laughs> I just, I, it's just. <sighs> I, I, no. No. No, no. I, nope. I don't buy this. Nope. How does a man who leads by inspiration have lieutenants? How do they all come from a twenty-block radius of where he lived when he was a teenager? That's a fine How point. How are they all? so you know closely linked together that they all appear to know each other i, is I just it, is it possible that judgment day was mostly located in the los angeles area i think this one was <laughs> the, the tri the tri-state area you know the tri-county <laughs> area the, the la san francisco and i basically just uh, like you, you mentioned like the, the whole the skynet like appears to be at least in the terminator 3d the ride in la are you, are you suggesting that Judgment Day and all that everything that came after it was some kind of really twisted, dark version of the Truman Show? Where L- <laughs> LA, LA just had a giant bubble put over it, and all this horrible shit went down, and everyone else is eating popcorn, going, "What is it? Wow, this is really good entertainment." Tune in oh. next week, folks. John Connor's going to be racing around on motorbikes. <laughs> <sighs> I, I think I was chewing my own hand off by that. What were you going to say, Josh? I, I was just going to say, yeah, no, uh, the, the missiles only hit America, and for th- as we all know, America is the world. Yeah, no, that's that's the biggest problem I have with this ending is that the implication is, well, with America down, the rest of the world is just going to just give <laughs> up, just fall over and give up. Oh well, America's done. Like, Europe as a collective is more powerful than America. Like, maybe individually we're not, but as a collective, we are more powerful than America. So the idea that, like, well, okay, well, the most powerful country in the world is done. We might as well just put down all our guns and surrender to our robot masters. Um, it's just crazy. Like, the worst the worst thing that would come about from America, for, for the rest of the world, from America just disappearing, is that it would destroy the economy for decades. Like, that would be a huge problem, don't get me wrong. But it's not like we're going to... It's not post-apocalyptic. We're not. We're not in the dark ages. We've just got to really, you know, worry about what we spend our money on for a few 
hundred years. Like that's that, that's, what, that's what T four should have been, not Terminator <laughs> Four Salvation. Terminator Fall, the collapse of the Dow Jones. Yeah. <laughs> right. I mean, basically, this could have been dispelled with just a few shots of people in China looking up at the sky and seeing the oncoming missiles. People in Russia. People in England. People yeah. in Bangladesh. Just give us an idea that this is affecting the world. But no, they pull out all the fucking Michael Bay imagery of blue skies and farms and American shit. And it's 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 a really kind of sad, lovely, beautifully shot scene. But when you stop and think about it, it's just disgusting. Yeah. What they're actually basically saying, oh, fuck the rest of the world. And then Marco Beltrami turns up, uh, and I, I've loved Beltrami's work in the past. I think he did uh, Hellboy. It's a wonderful theme. And he just sort of plods out. And then it cuts into like this really shitty fucking record from Stained or POD or whatever piece of shit band was knocking about at that point. And it was like, we've just witnessed the end of the, in inverted commas, world. And you're playing this piece of shit? By the time Skynet became self-aware, it had spread into millions of computer servers across the planet. If you believe that, he also believed there are Richard Simmons Juniors running around. <laughs> Still on the subject of music, this is a particular specialist on late 90s, early 2000s new metal, Colossus. Okay, before we move on, can, can I go back to Colossus yeah, for a minute? <laughs> I, I, com- I completely forgot about this, and you moved on to the soundtrack before and I could Soviet jump in. Soviet Russia, uh, soundtrack moves on to you. Yeah, and, and Daredevil. Daredevil so- <laughs> soundtrack, best soundtrack ever. Drowning Pool and Rob Zombie. I used to have <laughs> that, that Evanescence that twice. Um, Two for one. Twice? Two It has so- a Chet Stroker and the Nickelbacks. so while i really enjoyed colossus in this movie uh everything that you said about him earlier is completely true but i didn't like him as Colossus in uh, if if this is the characterization uh, of Colossus going forward in like the greater X-Men continuity that's awful really cuz he he was put there as like the epitome of the goody two shoes just to just for a uh, uh, Deadpool to play off of mm-hmm. and and I I really don't think that he was actually a character okay uh- he, he was very like the original yes, Colossus. Yes, he was like 70s Colossus. He was not so much like 90s Colossus, who was more conflicted about Ilyana. 
I'm gonna need you to stop. Seriously, <laughs> big fan of Colossus here. I do see what you mean. He was very much a reduced sort of Deadpool's vision of what someone like Colossus would be, which is appropriate for a Deadpool movie. I think they could still do basically this, but with a bit more nuance and affection for the character's point of view in a an X-Men movie if they want to reuse this version of the character. Uh, a different read on Colossus might be because you only ever really see him when he's got his trainee around. Yes. He that might actually be on best behavior for her. That's a solid Ooh. point. We only ever see also, Cyclops never... when he is in his I do not like Wolverine mode. <laughs> <laughs> also, you only ever see him in Iron in Steel form. You don't get him in flesh. Yeah, why is he sitting there eating breakfast in 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 uh, organic steel mode? That I think it's because they didn't have an actor. He's just a CG no, character. No, they have motion capture actor. <laughs> also, we forget well, you lap dance by nerd. <laughs> <laughs> that was of course our Deadpool podcast when we had the guys from The Mana Pool, the Magic the Gathering collectible card game podcast on our show. And this was when we were on their show. So that's the Mana Pool number 393 for you guys to track down. They'd invited us on to talk about how Hollywood could produce a Magic the Gathering movie that would actually be a hit with audiences, something that would like even vaguely have a likelihood of, of sticking, you know, because magic is, is a very specialized area and, uh, you know, the tendency would be very likely to make it extremely dry, like the Warcraft movie, which, of course, at the time hadn't been released and we were really, really hoping was going to be more like what we were describing and less like it actually was. You know, maybe it'll be more fun for the sequel. Interestingly enough, though, what they didn't realize was what I was describing was my planned fantasy subversion series, The Princess Thieves. So this is kind of the prototype I'm coming up with on the spot here, based on things that I've been really thinking hard about. This is why I, after I think probably after doing this show, I went from this being something I wanted to do way down the line, like in Phase 3 of New Century, to something I just had to do right now. So you have the mana pool to thank for the adventures of Gwendolyn, Robin, Oberon, Viola, now currently playing out rather than in a few years' time. But a huge thank you to the Manipool who uh, really showcased us and, and, and showed us such love and uh, appreciation for what we do that uh, you guys signal boosted the hell out of us. We got a huge amount of new listeners just on the back of this episode of, of our guesting. So thank you guys. So let's let's get away from all the thing, all the ways that a magic movie could go wrong because mm-hmm. we've just spent way longer on that than I thought we would. And Alex has a list, as you said, of ways that it can be done right. It's basically the opposite of what we just said. <laughs> nice. <laughs> yeah, you know, all that stuff we just – don't do that. Yeah. Now, um, the way I'm, I'm pitching this here, it's, it's actually a very it, – rather than just generalizing, I have a very specific style of film um, that's that sort of set up. And, and, like, you know, this is how you could do a magic film in a way that will really be successful. It's not a generalized this will ma- – you know, if you do – any one of these things, it'll work. It kind of has to be all of them, or now there are some optional extras at the end, but um, there are, of course, other ways beyond this, but this is just a way to do an MTG movie. Um, number one, characters need to be our windows to the world. 
if they come second and they are not likable and or compelling, they don't have to be likable, but they do have to be compelling. If they're likable and compelling, so much the better. But if they're compelling without being likable, that's at least something to latch on to. So Game of Thrones, for example, is filled with characters who aren't likable, but they compel a huge amount of viewers mm. or, or readers. Um, but yeah, if they're not likable or compelling, then nobody will care about the world. And it has to be characters first, world second. Now, ultimately, in MTG, you're selling the world, but you need those characters. It can't be that the world, uh, it can't be that the characters serve the world. It has to be uh, this way first to begin with, at least. Number uh, two. Yeah. Um, yeah, like like two includes were describing earlier, that that was yeah. part of their big strategy change recently, making those planeswalkers more important for the story. That makes sense. But like yep. I said, they're, they're, it's like in, in Mass Effect, if you play the, those games, when you talk to your Salarian buddy in that, uh, Morden Solis, he is your window to the Salarian people. So it's through him that you'll learn all about them. But because you love Morden so much, you pay attention to what he's saying. If he's just here to tell you expositionary tracts, you don't care. You don't care about what he's saying or who he's saying it about, and you're just waiting for it to move on. Now, before we leave uh, uh, this topic of making it character-driven and making them our windows, in in Mm. light of the uh, missteps we've discussed, Mm. do you think you're better off attempting to characterize an established character, or Mm. are you better off creating a new character so you're not bringing that baggage that everyone has already associated with? My thought on that would... Oh, go ahead. I was going to no. say what you guys think, because you guys know the characters. <laughs> okay, so my thought would be that we – we because magic has so many worlds, you don't necessarily have to go to one that we know. Right. Which means you don't necessarily have to have characters that we already know. But it would be nice if characters that we already know are in there somewhere. You know, like and, story doesn't have to be – just be cameos, right? They, yeah, they, like they've story got to be important. Doesn't have to be about Jace Balaran, the the planeswalker. Please, please don't be, but it will. But be. <laughs> but if you have him as a a major character, but it's but not the main character, mm-hmm. I, I think that might be that might be good. If it's just cameos, you run the risk of Mortal Kombat Annihilation Syndrome when exactly. Nightwolf walk, walks on. I think We Hate Movies said, I could hold my breath for longer than he's on screen. Yeah. <laughs> well, but yeah, it just literally becomes box ticking. People are very aware of that when it happens. Turns up and goes, I think, oh, I've got a bit of information to give you. Bye. One thing that they would do well to steer clear of um, is something that, you know, even the almighty Hellboy fell victim to, where you have this world where there are characters that everybody recognises, and then you introduce it all to this new guy who's just started today, and he's you, the (laughs) audience, got it? So everybody's going to explain everything to him, got that? So you guys know what's going on. The character's so superfluous, they removed him entirely from the second film with a sentence. Yeah, we just posted him to Atlanta, uh, Atlanta, to uh, Alaska. (laughs) Literally, we wrapped Both him up in brown places. paper, yep. stamp on his head, posted him. Yeah, I think one of the things that um, the Magic franchise in particular has to sort of contest with is that mm-hmm. um, there, the way that it's set up involves a little bit of you have to string the audience along to explain, and bare minimum, these are people that can do magical things, and the relevant ones, which will presumably include whatever our focus character is, can go between worlds. And you can explain that without someone sitting in Hogwarts class and having it told to them or yeah. without Watson there asking the main character questions the whole time. But yeah. I do like, actually when, when uh, um, I mentioned Pantalaimon talking to Lyra and telling her, uh, you know, if you, if you drink water, then you will be hydrated. Um, <laughs> it's, 
it, it, it's such a simple scene. Lyra burns her finger on a candle and goes, ow, and holds her finger. Pantalaimon does exactly the same thing. The smallest child in the audience will immediately grasp exactly the link between them. You never have to say it. Right. And with the magic franchise as it is, like, realistically, if they go in the direction of making movies out of this, they're going to probably want to make more than one. Mm-hmm. And the main, you know, conceit of all of it is that because there are different worlds, you can tell very different stories that can have lasting consequences for that world that don't have to follow the movie around. And yeah. so given that, I think the way that they would probably want to structure it is to make a new character for it. Mm-hmm. That way they don't have the baggage, but that means they can also maintain the existing personalities and whatever of all of the other characters mm. without shorting oh. them into main character status. Like they did in the comics with Dak Faden. Yeah, actually, I, I was going to bring up Dak Faden, and I, I hate to do it because uh, I'm, I'm a little – I'm a little people have some strong feelings about Dak Clues, he's the greatest thief in the multiverse. I know because they keep <laughs> telling us that. And that is his character. Right there. You guys are now caught up. Yeah, you know everything yeah, that's, you need to know about Dex Faden. That's pretty much <laughs> everything you need to know. Uh, but I'm wondering if what they might want to do is take a relatively recent character, one that we haven't got a lot of backstory about, but at least we're aware of, someone mm. like Dak Faden, where we don't have a lot of baggage, but at least we know, oh, that guy's already established in the mm, universe. Yeah, yeah. Let's go with something like that rather than someone who's got, you know, years and years and sets behind him, someone like yeah. uh, Jace. See, ultimately with this, you have to kind of uh, disregard the millions of Magic players out there and, and look at this uh, like an exec. And basically, uh, I hate doing this, but having to think like a marketer and just assume that nobody in your audience has ever played Magic the Gathering. And if you put in enough stuff for the MTG crowd, then good. And, you know, they might you want them to embrace it. But ultimately, it has to be a case of. Here is a character that a complete newcomer will go, oh, okay, I like him, but not because they're anything to do with the game, because you want a Jack Sparrow, not a Will Turner, if you get my drift there. Yeah. You want somebody who has immediate character and somebody that people immediately latch onto. You want a Star-Lord. If you like the sound of all of that world-building, then uh, listen carefully to the next 11 minutes, because I think this explains my New Century series, which I couldn't not do a big thing on because it's been such a significant part of my creative career. And the people I've met who I get to make this with, I'm lucky enough to be able to know and work with professionally every week. Some of the best friends I've ever had. I made this overview and explanation of the series to coincide with my 500th episode, because I think it explains it in a more succinct way than I've ever done in the past. This is an introduction to the New Century Multiverse for those who have just arrived and would like to know where to start. I'm Alexander Shaw, the writer. This is a weekly fiction podcast telling different stories that all play into one grand saga. When each story is finished, which takes about 24 weeks, we adapt them into complete audio dramas and books for purchasing on Amazon and Bandcamp. You can start with the current story and pick things up from there, or choose one of the earlier ones. It's designed to be accessible that way. The saga begins in an alternate timeline in 1882. Ten years previously, portals began appearing all around the world. One in Mississippi, one in Canada, and one in Egypt. After them came the plague and the people who became sick were transformed into infectious and cunning monsters. In America, those left alive called them Wendigos. 
A decade later and the scattered survivors are pulling back together. Things are a little better, but the planet is a very different and dangerous place, and many strange new creatures besides the Wendigo are walking the land. It's the story of what happens to this version of the human race, and how their history will play out very differently to our own. That is, if they live long enough to see the new century. So as you can probably tell, the overall genre is science fiction, but each story has a different tone and a different subgenre, and its own array of vibrant, colourful characters, some of whom will turn up later in other stories. What you have to do is decide which one appeals to you the most. And when its thrilling climax has drawn you in, I am good at endings, and you are completely hooked on the world, dive into the rest. There will always be a new tale unfolding and a growing collection of books to read or listen to for newcomers. And now it is my great pleasure to present to you the main voice cast who are going to introduce the first six stories in the New Century Multiverse. I'm Matt Wardle, and I play Dr. Julius Kaufman, one of the contributors to the Cartographer's Handbook, an alternate history survival guide. The Handbook is an in-world artifact written by the character of Thomas W. Arlington, controversial director of the First National Intelligence Agency. It contains testimonials and journal entries from various American survivors. It serves two purposes. Firstly, to put paid to superstition about the Wendigo and give the troops a solid package of information. Secondly, to be read aloud to the scattered settlements the cartographer scouts make contact with in the hopes of bringing them into the reunified states. It is, in effect, propaganda, a desperate move to enforce recruitment devised by someone who has calculated that without every man, woman, and child on side as part of a grand military effort, we will not survive as a species. The people of this world were used to a hard frontier life before the plague struck, so they fared better than their 21st century counterparts might. However, without modern medicine, communications, transportation, or weapons, the daily challenges they face are very different to those of the average zombie survivor. I'm Sharon Shaw, and I play Abigail Gray, bad-tempered government agent in the gothic mystery Secret Rooms. My old friend James Penrose and I are recruited to the cartographers by Captain Annie Oakley and prepare to travel across America to do Director Arlington's work. It's no picnic though, we get shot at almost immediately and I find myself tossed into farming work for screwing up negotiations. One of the first places we visit is my hometown, where I left my parents behind nearly a decade ago. What I find there is unsettling. On the way back, we stop to shelter for the night at a mysterious old mansion and meet its uncanny occupants. The woods are full of wendigos, the mansion is full of secrets, and there is no certainty that Annie, James and I will survive the night. I'm Maureen Foley, and I play an emotionally troubled ten-foot-tall jungle cat named Hrow in Tiger's Eye. This is an epic adventure which takes place on Rama, a parallel Earth on the other side of the portals, 
where felines evolved as the dominant species instead of apes. One day whilst hunting, I come across a human boy clinging to a log, rushing down the Great Serpent River. I try to turn my back and let this peculiar animal drift away, but something compels me to fish him out of the water. His name is Miguel, and he does his best to communicate with me. My tribe sees this interloper as dangerous, and wants the boy gotten rid of. I decide to make the journey to take him back to his home, but the jungle we travel through is dangerous and uncharted, and we're being stalked by someone who is absolutely determined to kill him. I'm Spencer Lieb, and I play Major Frank Butler in Arlington, a fast-talking political thriller set in a reclaimed and troubled Washington, D.C., focusing on the people trying to rebuild America. The bodyguard and military confidant of Thomas and his wife and co-director, Sarah Arlington, I'm kind of a genial, respectful fellow and something of a crack shot. But I also get excited at the thought of unicorns, so there's that. There's a vice presidential assassination involving an enormous and lethal mythical monster, and now the Arlingtons have to find a new candidate fast before President Ulysses S. Grant dies. And then there's the matter of the four racist police officers on trial for murder, the results of which look set to tear the city apart. All of this would be much easier if Thomas didn't absolutely hate the people he's trying to save, leaving Sarah, as the more optimistic of the two, with the daily task of keeping them moving forwards, whilst they both try to stay connected to their twin daughters, Truth and Harriet. With every day presenting new challenges, I'm going to have to protect the Arlington family during the most dangerous month of their lives. I pray that I'm up to the task. I'm Theo Lee, and I play Gwendolyn in The Princess Thieves, a swashbuckling comedy steeped in British legends. One of the largest portals that opened in 1872 was in London, which was, at the time, staving off the same plague as America. This doorway led to another world, populated by dwarves and orcs. People from both races came through, helped us repel the savage infected, and then stuck around to occupy England, creating a new class system with dwarves at the top, orcs at the bottom, and humans stuck in the middle. As the granddaughter of Queen Victoria, I am the last surviving member of the British royal family, and I'm about to marry and become empress of two realms. One dwarf has adopted the mantle of Robin Hood for this era, and he and his long-suffering orc companions seek to liberate London from the tyranny of the upper classes. His bright idea is to kidnap me. The problem for Robin is that I'm extremely tough, and my dwarf nursemaid slash jester slash bodyguard Viola can weave exceptionally powerful spells to mess with your brain. Things do not go as planned. I'm Loretta Sella, 
and I play Harriet Arlington in the sci-fi western Steamheart. This book is where Phase 1 all comes together, and the surviving characters from Secret Rooms, Tiger's Eye, and Arlington join to undertake an epic journey across America on a mission to save the world. My parents, Thomas and Sarah, back in Washington, find out that there's a possible way to close the portals and eliminate the threat of what's on the other side. Their decision is to dispatch a team of government agents, a scientist, a specialist on unexplained phenomena, and a journalist to travel across the eastern states to the origin point of the first plague, Mississippi. Steamheart is my baby. She's one of the first prototypes for a new kind of gigantic, people-moving, multi-purpose land vehicle. My job is to drive them there and keep her going. It's a publicity stunt orchestrated to provide the American people with heroes they so badly need. And on the way, the crew of Steamheart will encounter those abandoned by the government years before, some sympathetic to their cause, some incredibly hostile. Our quest will lead us to encounters with beings from other worlds who will ultimately play a key part in reshaping this one. century multiverse it's time for you to explore available on amazon bandcamp and every week on the podcast okay it's difficult to know how to follow that up but i think we can finish this one off with some of the best dramatic readings and some of the best bad reviews against humanity funniest moments of our shows let's start with jurassic wrestling which was actually a completely impromptu thing that happened when we were reviewing jurassic world and uh, i suppose spoilers for the uh, you know what this is actually the way we describe it is better than what happens in jurassic world so if you've not seen jurassic world just listen to this it's way better this is the the start of the the final showdown yeah this I is love. Where I think you know all this trash talk we've done beforehand. This is where we forgive it all. Yeah, yeah because it does this, this and we're this like, your whole forgiven. entire final showdown is so satisfying that, like we said, we we let some of the things fly that are wrong with this film. But also, I love that the whole thing is a massive fuck you to Jurassic Park three. <laughs> <laughs> but, but we'll 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 get into that. We'll with, come to that Jutai. in a second. Yeah. Um, okay. So they they get outside. Then the raptors have surrounded them, and it's like at the very end of the original Jurassic Park, and it's like, oh my god, when's the T Rex going to show up and save the day? Oh, it's not. It's in its little paddock. And then um, the I Rex shows up. And Owen, I, uh, but hang on, before this, Owen sort of appeals to the raptors and says, please don't kill us. And they go, we might not. And then the Irex shows, shows well, up. He sort of, 
he's, not, I don't want to say, he's a bit disapproving towards Blue, isn't he? And it's like, it's like Blue, how could you? For yeah, sure. Yeah, it's like, how could you? <laughs> Come oh, on, man. And he goes more like, oh, I see. That's how it is, or something <laughs> along those lines. Blue goes, oh, shucks. <laughs> really anyway. Like, right, I'm turning the charm to full now. So the Irex I turns up behind them, and the Raptors then have to choose their allegiance. Do they go with Alpha 1 or Alpha 2? And the Irex is like, kill them, my pretties. And then Chris Pratt is, nah, nah, kill him. He sucks. And um, the Raptors decide to attack the Irex, and it's this great sort of moment of, you did it by being kind to them. And uh, two of them get taken out way well, too easily. First off, it chomps you know, them down. We see, you know how we said you said earlier that it swipes the Raptors, all three Raptors, and takes them out? It basically swipes Blue, yeah. smashing Blue into a column, and you wipes the floor with them. It throws one into a hot dog stand, which then explodes. Yeah. One. I was like, ouch! Yeah. What's it? I Hot dogs remember. made of dynamite. The other <laughs> yeah. one, I think, it just like it grabs it by its body and then just pulls its head off. Okay. Something along those lines. At this point, I think they're they're hiding in like a souvenir stand, and for some reason, is it great? He's, he's counting, and he yeah. just says, "We need more teeth." I was like, "What? That's a weird line." It's an odd thing to say to set things up. Okay, Sharon, have a guess what's going to happen next. We need 40. Uh, hang on, just to set this one up, Claire goes, right, stay there, I will be I, right back. Which, I by the way, is for a horror movie <laughs> um, um, I don't think she says, I'll be right back. I think she just says, I've got an idea, but you guys got to stay here. What do you think Claire's running then off to do in her high heels? Talking to, talking to the guy in the, uh, uh, in the booth. Uh, she goes, right, I need you to open paddock 12. Paddock 12? But that's the, I need you to do it, man! And then the, she gets to paddock 12, the doors very slowly open, there's just darkness behind it, and then these two yellow eyes, very high off the ground, appear in the darkness, and then something massive starts coming out, and she goes, oh, f- I better run in my heels! She lights a flare, we must add, as oh, the yeah. doors dramatically open, she, she lights, lights a flare. And she's like... Okay, and then the fucking T-Rex emerges and then she's running back down the, the, the dinosaur avenue going, I've got to get this thing back. There's no way else it's we can take out the Irex. Another throwback to the original again, the fact that T-Rex is still like flares. <laughs> they love them. <laughs> no, I showed you that earlier in the goat feeding scene. If you, yeah. you notice in the goat feeding scene, they fire a flare off to okay. the T-Rex. Now, had the T-Rex just turned up and roared, that would have been enough. Had the T-Rex just been there and not roared, that would have been enough. But this T-Rex enters the scene and then comes into full view on the camera by battering down the skeleton of a Spinosaurus. Yes! Fuck you, JP3! In this amazing orgasmic moment of slow motion. Still the queen. It works so well. And, and basically, this is when you then get your Pacific Rim moment, because you get... Oh, God, yes! ...versus T-Rex, and they're f***ing each other up, slamming each other into these things, and the T-Rex is not as powerful as you would have hoped, and it's getting battered down, and you're like, I thought you were the king, T-Rex, come on, pull yourself up! And it's it's giving as good as it gets, but it's getting injured, and you're like, come on, Rocky, come on! And then to hit another wrestling analogy, 
You hear a noise, you know the noise. Well, well no, the, there's the low point first. The T-Rex oh. is down, and it's going to get bitten, like when the Spinosaurus bit it before. Yeah. It's going to get killed, Spinosaurus. and you're like, oh my god, it's mortal. How can they possibly save the day? They are but human. And then you hear alone... <laughs> bursts onto the scene and suddenly you've got a Raptor T-Rex tag team on the Irex. <laughs> Barrels on top, it bashes the Irex on the head with a chair, it gets the ladder out. <laughs> no, no, it is actually, the table. actually cooler in the fight. That I never thought I'd see. There's a bit where the, the sort of you obviously have the, the small dinosaur leaping all over the place. It at one point it leaps off the IREX onto the back of the T-Rex. It's like oh, it rides him. Yes, <laughs> it literally rides the T-Rex. It's fucking awesome. And then the IREX is down, but it's not out, and it's like I am gonna fucking kill all of you, and it injures them both. And they they backed it up, and it's in the corner, and it's gonna be it's gonna take them both down before it goes, and it's backed slightly too far towards the lagoon. And then... DOES The manager makes his appearance. <laughs> I don't care, I don't know who... Fucking Mesosaurus grabs the Irex by the head, drags it under the water, and it's like... I want to get it away with it if it wasn't for you snooping raptors. <sighs> and then the raptor and the rex regard each other in this kind of... Sup? 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 Let us never speak of this again. They, they, they almost do a bro nod, don't they? Yep. <laughs> then they high five, and then they go their separate ways. And then the, the Rex stalks off to the island to do its awesome roar. And then Blue talks to, uh, you know, and then basically Blue almost like leans in and goes, Blue is home. To, <laughs> to Owen at that point. And then he runs off into the park that is now basically his to traverse. Oh, he looks to go back to Owen, and I think Owen says no, Blue. And then no. he just goes off. There's no room for you in my apartment. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you could have said that, and it would have been a great lie. I thought you were going to say, "There's no room for you in my life." That <laughs> actually makes far more sense. Another massively requested clip. This is Josh Garrity reading an Amazon review for something called The Daddle. Uh, Josh. Right, I'm, I'm currently staring at the greatest invention humanity has ever... <laughs> <laughs> uh, Describe it again. Okay, so it's called The Daddle, and what I am looking at... Hang on, before you say it, right, just let everybody guess what a daddle is. Okay, go on. Uh, no is, it, uh, is it a ladle designed for men? No. <laughs> no. Did Bick make it? No. Nope. <laughs> Maybe actually. Look at this. It's very sexist. And this guy, uh, this guy using it, has got a pixelated face. Oh, is it? Is it like um, 
uh, like a, a, I want to say a sex thing, but that doesn't narrow it down much. Is it, is it like a leather-covered paddle or something, but for men? No. No. Oh. I'm really surprised you guys aren't getting it, actually. Um, I'll, I'll just say... It's a portmanteau. Is it, could, could, if anyone knows what a portmanteau is... Yeah. Yeah, yeah the two two words pushed together to make one. So yeah. dad and saddle is what you're looking for. Da- so it's a, oh, okay. It's a right, saddle. Right. What you put oh, on oh, that. I, I see what you did there. Very yeah. Clear. So is it that... is a sex thing. Oh, according to this picture. Um, so the, the picture I've got is of a grown man uh, on all fours with, uh, I assume, I assume this... <laughs> I assume is his child <laughs> riding on his back. Oh, this person of short, reduced stature. We can but hope. Okay. How picky is this child? <laughs> Put a saddle on it. Yeah, I'm not riding that. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I haven't even got to the review yet. Okay, right. The concept is enough, frankly. Okay. <laughs> Please note that this daddle is Western style and will not be appropriate for those trained in the English father riding method. (laughs) (laughs) Whereby one holds a rein in each hand and posts the trot. If you are looking forward to father jumping, father fox hunting, father polo, or daddy dressage, you will not be able to use this daddle. Western daddle riders hold the reins with one hand and sit the trot. The pommel or horn on this daddle is meant to be hooked, which is useful when roping cattle or other competing or unruly fathers. Use the link for where to buy that, or oh, just Google it. The Daddle. <laughs> it's available on Amazon and all other good stockists of <coughs> weird shit. Continuing this theme in Digital Drift 48, when we had on Laura Kate Dale, Lou Fernandez, Derek Ritchie, and Lauren Grieve, this is attempting to read an article about horribly made Chinese toys without laughing. I will note that exploiting underpaid workers is one of the things that gets me angriest. So it takes a pretty spectacular level of incompetence to make me laugh this hard. And this is written by Sean Baby of uh, Cracked.com. So uh, all, all credit to him. Um, and uh, for also, for, thank you, Sean Baby, for basically making me laugh so hard. It actually, I, I got a bit delirious. So I'll, I'll start this one, and then I'm going to break pretty soon. Uh, what we have to do, because it's very visual, we have to describe what the... And we can all do this, I suppose, what the image is of this toy. And uh, there's a bunch of different toys. America is the land of opportunity. And for many immigrants, that means starting a business in my neighborhood of San Francisco's Mission District. That business is always a maze filled with garbage. You see them every 10 feet. Tiny stores offering an unlikely combination of gift, fashion, fish, and trade. Sun-bleached Doro, the exploder luggage, spills (laughs) from them into the sidewalk. And inside are narrow corridors filled with one-size-fits-all wedding dresses, bras for women who never plan on taking their shirts off and I heart San Francisco snow globes from back when it was called Pad Gaia. No product in the store is ever more than six inches from a tube of underwear of du- or a dusty neon Jesus clock. But if you've had all your shots and you're thin enough to navigate the visit one and head to the toy section, their toys are 
amazing. And if you're in the market for joy and magic, every single one of these is on the shelves now. So I'm going to pass over to Sharon for this one, uh, number 10. Um, can, right, while Sharon's finding this, can you folks describe what a mzing truck is? Uh, it is an oh. elephant driving a three-wheeled scooter. <laughs> is it a truck? It's, a, uh, it's-, <laughs> it's just a three-wheeled scooter as far as I can tell. Yeah. No, it should also be said the elephant is deliriously happy at this point <laughs> with two of the biggest ears I possibly... The ears are almost bigger than his head and an expression that either says pure joy or I've gone insane, please God help me. To me it says more, I'll see you in your nightmare. <laughs> <laughs> oh, can I, can I distri- describe the sticker in the top right corner? <laughs> Jesus, yes. <laughs> it it appears to be two um, two Chinese children, and it just says around it, "The ideal paradise of the friends." It if, is? Anything, if anything sounds like a cult, that sounds like. <laughs> right. So this is what he has to say about the Mzing truck. Okay. It's amusing, but with number, a V instead of a U. There are a number of elegant features to this children's favorite. Let's take a look at each of them. One. The moving bus makes the baby wonder the reason of moving. (laughs) You know how hard I'm going to find this. This is so unfair. (laughs) While I admire the effort to trick babies, why would a baby wonder why an elephant is driving a bus? Yeah, it's weird to you and me, but it's quite possibly the most ordinary thing a baby sees in a day. Babies have no idea that... Got it. Move on. Who's the next one? Is it Lauren? Hang on. Let me me just finish this bit. The reason for Amzing Truck can only be explained with the devil. (laughs) But maybe they do, and that's why they scream. (laughs) Lauren, take it. The pretty music aroused baby to learn music. Forgive me if I'm skeptical of child psychology research done by a sweatshop's copywriter, but I don't think there's a link between musical aptitude and an elephant monster playing (laughs) camp town races with a car horn. (laughs) If this said pretty music caused baby work harder and meat more tender, then okay, you're the expert. Meat more tender. (laughs) One, again. The shining flashing light can arouse the seeing baby's interest. I think I'm starting to get it. If you shine a flashlight into a baby's face for 20 minutes a day, it will be a certified technician by the time it turns four. But wait, if setting a baby near beeps and lights turns him into a genius, then why are there so many stupid babies? And how did the last generation of under-stimulated idiot babies grow up to invent something as brilliant as a moving truck? Time travel? It's time travel, isn't it? Okay, who wants to do Bibi? Um, yeah, Laura's next, then. You do okay, Bibi. I'll, I'll talk about Bibi. <laughs> Bibi. Okay, so should we talk about the picture of it's the creepiest-looking baby I've ever so seen? Horrible. It's so it's, it's a grin. It's just the grin is... It's more scary than Chucky. It also oh. appears to, in the top right corner of the box, have like the other version where it's like the most old lady-faced, upset, <laughs> angry child. <laughs> How do you want oh. to see your house? Well, we're about to find out. <clears throat> in the baby world, a demonic face is the polite way to let everyone know that you've been replaced with a changeling. <laughs> <laughs> Look at this monstrosity. This doll was designed as a dream home for a murderer's ghost. (laughs) (laughs) My body will shaking when I'm giggling. (laughs) 
I think Bibby's body will also be shaking when the scarabs inside it start their mating ritual. <laughs> God! <laughs> God! Uh, oh man, can I do the next one since oh, yeah. that oh, Jazzman yeah, one for, yeah. was terrifying? Sure. <laughs> okay, so this is called Wildlife Animals Handpick. Giant Dimetrodon, Neon Pink Parasaurolophus. These are the sweetest farm animals I've ever seen. The best welcome gifts for the children. Many style a lot. Selected freely by you. Superior materials. Most new catania. Flashing enter. <laughs> This English came from one of Wildlife Animal's hand-picked competitors, a line of toys known only as Animal. Animal, and uh, by the way, these are all, all capital letters, which is why it's, you know, yelled. Animal promised many style a lot, only every single bag was the same. Orange elk and orange liger. Collect both one! Elk and liger orange! It also mentioned how most of the oaks and ligers had new catinas, which seemed more like a warning than a feature. And of course, flashing enter. This phrase is so common on Chinese toys that I'm almost positive it means, oh god, the factory laser bot is coming. (laughs) The thing I like about it very quickly is when Lauren was going through the text for the uh, most favorable grammar, all of those were bullet points. Yeah. It read like a paragraph, but on the packaging, they're bullet, bullet points. points. Yeah. Well, no. yeah, exactly. My favourite bullet point was superior materials most. <laughs> New Katina and flashing enter. Okay, number nine. Beat Magnum True Hero, which is a robot that says flashing enter on it. And it says beat Magnum True Hero, the truth eho the eyes meet before. Met before. Beat Magnum True Hero is a huge roller skating robot that comes with one accessory, a seven-inch shield. Here's what's strange, though. There are five choking hazard warnings on the box. Five. Wait, did China read about our obesity rate and decide our children had snakes for faces? (laughs) Listen, parents, if there is someone or something in your house capable of swallowing any part of Beat Magnum True Hero, (laughs) focus your attention on it. That it is that is almost certainly the future cause of death for your child. <laughs> this fashively fashionably colored robot has seven unique actions, and I know you're dying to hear them, but first I want you to brace yourself. They're kind of weird. One could sound a beautiful music. It might sound a beautiful music. It might not. Look, they didn't exactly hire China's top robotics team for this project. So if some beautiful music sounds, have a good time. Seven ninety nine buys you honesty, not craftsmanship. Oh god, I'm dying. Two. Two. Oh, this? Number two is luffing. No one said this was a children's toy. Beat Magnum, true hero, is a sexual being and it will stop to love. Three. Three. Luffing. The luffing will continue long into stage three. Four. Oh, the picture sells it there. Go ahead. Number four is go ahead. I think it's saying that if you want to luff two, it's not programmed to mind it's not programmed to mind that one bit. Five, go ahead. <laughs> stage five, beat Magnum True Hero insists. Go ahead. Six, stage six, go ahead. Stage six, beat Magnum True Hero seriously cannot believe you're entering into a battle of wills with a masturbating robot. Are you waiting for it to change its mind? 
to simply ignore its prime directive? Go ahead. <laughs> Stage 7 installed three AA batteries. Oh, wow, you mean Beat Magnum True Hero did all that before I put in the batteries? <laughs> Holy shit! <laughs> <laughs> Quote, unquote, the true Eho the eyes met before loosely translates to the hand I know how for type with is luffing. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Lou, thank you so much. In this next clip, Sharon has just been asked to describe a bootleg action figure. And while we're at it, because that was a short one, could you describe for us the picture that you've that's in the next oh one? My God! <laughs> <laughs> oh my god! Oh, if I hurt anybody's ears there, but my God. Okay. What? Okay. Right, I'm going to describe the toy first. There's so much wrong with this. This this appears to be, superficially, uh, an old RoboCop action figure that has been... It's had all the paint loved off it (laughs) um, and has possibly also melted a bit. (laughs) Um, it's like been... Sid, is it Sid from Toy Story? Is it yes. been at it? Oh, that's what it looks yeah. like. Yes, I think He's so. With Sid. with some sandpaper, um, and, and it's been stapled into a little bag with a label that reads. Uh, <laughs> oh my god! I don't even know which one to start with. Okay, okay. It's the fact that it's two the as quotes. well. It's the, the first that it's two. Like, it, it's not yeah. the first. It's no, definitely it's, it's, it's not the third one. No okay. one believed this was Kitch. the first one. Right. Okay. So the, there's some little quotes. I'll go with those <laughs> first. It begins, I'll be back. Wrong. Of course. Um, uh, okay. Right. Uh, now, I'll give you the, the title, actually, of the toy. It is apparently Robert Cop 2. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but they put the trademark in. Yeah, absolutely. No, nobody's trademarked. Right, I can assure you of that. This is um, in no way violating any kind of copyright law. Futuristic Robert, Terminator, Autobotic. It really isn't. Exciting movie look. It really isn't. What are the the fourth one? I mean, imagine like someone's got to fulfil a quota of four asterisk things throughout <laughs> the, the sixth one. They're sitting at their desk going, oh, what am I going to put for the last one? I've already said he's futuristic, but I've already said he's the Terminator. I'm not sure about that one, but I think he is. Um, exciting movie look? Eh. I should, 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 will I waste quotation marks on this one? What do I Dig, 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 dig. What should I put? Toy. <laughs> I think he should have put quotation marks on toys. to explain because it doesn't look like one (laughs) there's also the words of robert cop on this sort of the 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 tag uh it's it's not even a a packaging it's just a bit of the robert cop stencil on the top but there's a big old arrow pointing to this silhouette and it says and it says the furniture of law enforcement (laughs) he is somewhat flies in the face of it being a toy if it's also furniture. It does, it does. But the, the, the absolute... Work for the show, folks. The absolute best part is if you look at this poor fucking little toy, the expression on his face so says, sad. I was not meant for this, please kill me now. <laughs> this is oh not my life. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> They'll fix you, Murphy, I guess. 
<laughs> they fix that. <laughs> in reference to the Autobotic in brackets, <laughs> there is some kind of push button in the middle of his chest, as oh, though once upon well. a time he possibly had some kind of action. But there's, n- I can tell you from looking at it, there's no way it works now. There isn't no no action left in that. They've, I think they've they've tried to cover all their bases on this one, haven't they? They're not sure what film it was attached to, so they went for RoboCop, Terminator, and the Transformers. Yeah. Just and like, presumably named him after Robert Patrick. And said yes. that the furniture of the future, which of course he is. Oh, I don't... God, I'm crying. Ah! <laughs> <laughs> oh. And both the Daddle and Robert Cop 2, the furniture of law enforcement, are available on YouTube if you actually want to see what they look like. I stuck a bunch of bad reviews against humanity down there so people could get an idea for what to expect when they tuned into one of those shows. Next up, a dramatic reading from the fourth Fifty Shades of Grey novel. Once again, with the guys from the Manor Pool. I take one bite of tuna to assuage. Assuage. I take one bite of tuna to assuage my hunger, then reach for my pen. I've chosen a quote, a warning. I made the correct choice walking away from her. Not all men are romantic heroes. I'll take the word menfolk out. She'll understand. (laughs) What? (laughs) Um, Bill, I think you've actually got chapters five and six because they're quite short. Okay. I feel like I should be doing some kind of voice to these. Um, So let's just pull a voice out of there because I... I'm not familiar enough with the subject material. I'm just going to pretend it's all Alan Rickman. <laughs> Comedy will ensue. You are dignifying sure. it way too I need much. to get out of Seattle this weekend. Exactly. This chick is all over my junk and I've got to get away. <laughs> my voice carries cold and sinister and the relative quiet while I struggle to contain my anger. She's oil on my troubled deep dark waters. <laughs> <laughs> See, that actually sounds a little bit Hannibal Lecter, which kind of fits. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That, that could work a little bit. Oh. And you want me to do chapter six? Yep. <clears throat> All right. Apologies for this one. Am I supposed you to can, bleep you, this you part can, or you, not? you can bleep it if you want, or you can say it if you want. It depends how raw you want to get. Oh, well, I mean, you know, given the subject matter. Um, <laughs> I have never slept with a woman. I've fucked many. <laughs> <laughs> But to wake up beside an alluring young woman is a new and stimulating experience. My cock agrees. <laughs> what? <laughs> She's nodding. Do you see? Do you see? Oh, my And then he shows her, shows her a slideshow of it. <laughs> I imagine he has to. Her hair is beautiful. Lush, long, thick. Idly, I wonder what it would be like to braid. <laughs> for no. all Somebody get this well, I, I, I think you, you found the right tone for this, by the way. You found Excellent. a complete creep voice. Thank you. <laughs> for all her maladroitness, she oh, has nice. a beautiful neckline. Oh, sweet Lord, those two things have nothing to do with each other. <laughs> Is that yeah, wonderful? James got word of the day toilet paper. <laughs> A Sauvignon Blanc 
would be a good icebreaker. Pulling out a serviceably poily fumé, <laughs> I watch Anna peer through the balcony doors at the view. And there she is, disarming once more, surprising me at every turn. My cock concurs. Oh. He is going to stop consulting his cock before he makes any decision. I, I started to keep a tally. We're only at two <laughs> so far. It's I've got one line left for you, so here yeah, you go. Uh, go for it, yeah. Anastasia watches me with, what? Trepidation. She's probably never seen an erect penis before. <laughs> 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 oh god yes because she never took 7th grade biology um if you dare you're chapter 7 and 8 boy I don't I don't know if I dare but we the voice do the voice <laughs> I, I, I don't think I can do justice to the creepy voice I'm just not that creepy it was bordering on um, uh, Morgan Freeman as well wasn't it, it, it was so, <laughs> Yeah, most of the time when I do voices, they start as one and slowly turn into another one. And I've just oh accepted that. I thought for sure you were going to say they all slowly turn into Morgan Freeman. because that If would I be were funnier. talented at that, I would do way more podcasts. <laughs> this is true. Arnold creature, she would be a joy to train. My cock twitches in agreement. Again with oh, penis consulting. Once again. Leal <laughs> <Leo> Johnson. <laughs> Just put the ice in the glasses. With my chin, I indicate two glasses. (laughs) (laughs) It's a a Chardonnay. The ones up there. It'll be more drinkable with the ice. Everyone ices their Chardonnay. Mr. Uh, I take this opportunity to point out that it is not polite to take out one's wee-wee and point at the wine glasses with... (laughs) Yeah, dinner table, at least. That one, and there's the other one over there. They are different. Please pass me my sweatpants, she orders, pointing to them. Wow, Miss Steele can be a bossy little thing. What? Fuck off, she said <laughs> please. <laughs> she even the said fact please. that he's asking for his sweatpants supports my theory as to what the Chen is. He's clearly not wearing pants for any of this. <laughs> Doubtful. Very doubtful. All right, chapter nine. A few minutes pass, and once I'm convinced she's gone to bed, persuaded by my capital letters, I head to my bedroom. Are, what? are capital letters also some euphemism? Yes. Is that also his penis? That I, it's a capital I, I suppose. I, I think from, from maybe lowercase. Uh, <laughs> and finally, suck me, baby. She sucks my thumb hard. Fuck. Well, I now have my clues ringtone. <laughs> <laughs> Suck me, baby. God's love is crazy right now. It is damn wrong that Sharon doesn't get to say any of those my cock agrees lines. <laughs> he doesn't say it nearly enough. No. Uh, do you want me to carry on with chapter 14? Yep, keep going. Uh, in my closet, I strip off all my clothes and from a drawer pull out my favourite jeans. My DJ's. Dom jeans. Wow. <laughs> mm-hmm. Okay. Well, that's fair. Everybody has that pair of jeans that they look incredible in that they always wear. I, I'd say if they're that awesome, hang them up rather than keep them in a drawer. But hey. 
poor Elliot. We all look at Elliot who stops eating mid-chew, mouth-stuffed full, bovine. We've all been there. Poor Elliot. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, poor Elliot. That should have been at the end. We should go too. You (laughs) You have interviews tomorrow. We have to drive her back to her new apartment and it's nearly 11 o'clock. This is chapter 16. Chapter 16. This calls for, what did she call them? Shouty capitals! (laughs) My snort is derisive. (laughs) Yeah, it is. (laughs) And back to the quotes. Chapter 17? It's been an interesting morning. I sincerely doubt that. (laughs) No. We left Boeing Field at 11.30 PST. Stefan is flying with his first officer, Jill Bailey, and we're due to arrive in Georgia at 19.30 EST. Is that his next trick to read the shipping forecast? <laughs> <laughs> you want me to come over, friend? All right, so the first novel was Fifty Shades of Grey, and yes. I, I didn't read it. Was it told in a third-person perspective or from... No, it's uh, all told from Anna's from perspective. Anna's all told from Anna's. Yeah. And so all then, three. The, then three. there, there was... Basically, that's Tiger's Island, but with much more sex. And now we have we have Gray, which is told from his perspective, and I can only assume that the next one will be told entirely from his penis's perspective. Nice. <laughs> My inner penis is perfect. I, I like to there think that they're no going to take it in a different direction and just start riffing off like spaghetti western titles. So it's like Fifty Shades of Gray, followed by A Few Shades a More, gray. and then ultimately <laughs> the Good, the Bad, and the Naughty. Nice. <laughs> Now, the next one is going to be written from the perspective of E.L. James's accountants, and it's just 5,000 pages of cash, 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 cash. cash, cash. Once upon a time in Mr. Gray's underpants. I I can't wait until we get to the the far ends of the spinoffs where we can hear the story from the point of view of his dom jeans. (laughs) That's another game. He's been trapped in this accursed dresser. If only I could find out about the Taiwan Peace Accords. Today he opened the closet. I thought he was going to take me out, but no, he just went for a tie. <laughs> this is one of his games again. <sighs> I wouldn't mind one from the point of view of his chauffeur, Taylor, actually. Just be like, oh, for the love of God, I'm so bored. This job is awful and I have to listen to him having sex. He buttons me. I bite my fly. Oh, fuck! <laughs> God, love is crazy right now. It has been an amazing decade of podcasting. God knows if I can manage another, but I'm going to bloody well try. I need to thank everyone who has ever guested on my shows, or who voice acted in my audio dramas, or who funded my many projects, or who added something to my output that in some way made people happier. I could just say thanks to all, you know who you are. But let me have a go at name-checking pretty much everyone. And it should go without saying, but I'll say it anyway. If you don't hear your name and you know you've helped me, then thank you as well. Here goes. Brendan Agnew. Lee Alexander. Ryan Astley. Liz Atkins. David B. James Batchelor. Duran Barnett. Mike Barton. Bobby Blackwolf. Mike Booth. Bill Bloodworth. Gary Blower. Rob Borges. Harrison Brockwell, Neil Brooks, Chris Brown, Kelly Brown, Ross Bugden, Bernie Burns, 
Bob Chipman, Sean Cullen, James Carter, Tom Champion, Lorraine Chisham, Tom Clark, Innes Clatworthy, James Cook, Scott Corzine, Cryoloff, Cassandra Corgard, Leon Cox, Gary Crosson, Laura Kate Dale, Paul Davies, Pascal Dooley, Kieran Datchler, Dominic Diamond, Paul DiCostanzo, Holly Dotson, Tony Edwards, Chris Eason, Alex Eading, Alex Edwards, Akila Edwards, no relation, Jamas Enright, Jesse Ferguson, Lou Fernandez, Chris Finnick, Ben Ford, Matt Fowler, Michael Fox, Daniel Floyd, Maureen Foley, Cheryl Gall, Gil Gamesh, Stefan Gardinia, Darren Gargett, Joshua Garrity, Giant Bomb, Paul Gibson, Chloe Goodchild, Andy Godoy, Joseph Grabinski, Timothy Green, Lauren Grieve, Nick Grugan, David Hartrick, Ben Hayes, Leah Haydu, Mike Hearn, David Hickman, Chase Holfelder, Dan Hopner, Ian Hopwood, Megan Hopwood, Dan Ilson, Brandon Ivey, Eric Jones, Stephen Thompson-Jones, Linda Thompson-Jones, Toby Jungius, Andrew Dupin, Marguerite Kenner, Justin Knowles, Sinan Kuba, David Lamont, Aaron Lecluse, Spencer Lieb, Theo Lee, Paris Lilly, Christopher Logan, Matt Lowe, Kevin McLeod, Daniel Mayer, David Merritt, Jerome McIntosh, Julian Murphy, Andrew Natan, Karu Nagisa, Tara Nelson, Callum O'Neill, Chris O'Regan, Duncan O'Sullivan, Patrick Ortner, John Osborne, James Perkins, Player One, Player Two, Rihanna Pratchett, James Portnow, Frankie Poonzi, Sarah Quillian Scott, Jeff Ramsey, Matt Ramsey, Steve Ridley, Derek Ritchie, Joel Robinson, Roxy, Paul Saburin, Maya Santandria, Abel Sabard, Lily Scaldaferi, Lee Scoville, Jason Slate, Loretta Saylor, Edie Sellers, Joe Simpson, Lyra Shaw, Carolyn Sonic, Charles Sprecht, Andrew J. Smith, Jim Sterling, Elaine Stryker, Alistair Stewart, Dit Simiu, Eric Siska, Neil Taylor, Will Templeton, Giles Thomas, Erish Travers, Antonio Torreson, David Turners, Merov Ulyansky, Thomas Underhill, Matt Wardle, Glenn Watts, Tim Wilsey, and Debbie Morse. And that's just the first 150 I could think of. And apologies if I got any of your names pronounced wrong. And of course, my fantastic friends and co-hosts of many years, Tony Atkins and Paul Shotton, the Digital Cowboys. 
and my co-host and very patient, beautiful and brilliant wife, Sharon Shaw. And to play us out, I think we all deserve some sugar-free gummy bears, don't you? This last round isn't for points. It's just a collection of seven reviews for the same baffling product. We're going to read them in a very special order. And if any of you reading or at home can make it to the end of this show without breaking down with laughter, then you are of stronger constitution than I. Ladies and gentlemen, may I present the five-pound bag of Haribo sugar-free gummy bears on Amazon.com. First person needs to read is Sharon. Introduce us to this product. Just don't, unless it's a gift for someone you hate. Oh, man, words cannot express what happened to me after eating these. The gummy bear cleanse. If you're someone that can tolerate the sugar substitute, enjoy. If you are like the dozens of people that tried my order, run. First of all, for taste, I would rate these a five. So good. Soft, true-to-taste fruit flavours like the sugar variety. I was a happy camper. But, or should I say, but, B-U-T-T. Not long after eating about 20 of these, all hell broke loose. I had a gastrointestinal experience like nothing I've ever imagined. Cramps, sweating, bloating beyond my worst nightmare. I've had food poisoning from some bad shellfish, and that was almost like a skip in the park compared to what was going on inside me. Then came the um, flatulence. Heavens to Murgatroyd, the sounds like trumpets calling the demons back to hell. The stench, like a thousand rotten corpses vomited. I couldn't stand to stay in one room for fear of succumbing to my own odours. But wait, there's more. What came out of me felt like someone tried to funnel Niagara Falls through a coffee straw. I swear my sphincter was screaming. It felt like my delicate starfish was a gaping maw, projectile vomiting, a torrential flood of toxic waste. 100% liquid. Flammable liquid. Napalm! It was actually a bit humorous for a nanosecond, as it was just beyond anything I could imagine possible. And it went on for hours. I felt violated when it was over, which I think might have been sometime in the early morning of the next day. There was stuff coming out of me that I ate at my wedding in 2005. (laughs) There was a read more, but I couldn't get that much into a single screen grab. No. No, I don't think we need more, really, do we? I I think they've summed up the experience quite admirably. Player one, you're the second. April 25th, 2014. A day that will live in infamy. (laughs) I was suddenly and deliberately... Attack by these evil gummy bears. It all started the day prior when my sugar tooth persuaded me to eat two handfuls of these sugar-free delights. 
fast forward 15 hours, 23 minutes, and 44 seconds, the world shook. <laughs> All hell broke loose inside me. A sudden headache, my skin began to perspire, and something tore around in my abdomen with a force enough to make me latch onto my couch with both hands and let out a sheer cry that sent my dog retreating into the bedroom. She probably knew the battle was already lost. <laughs> I tried to make for the bathroom, but the pressure was so intense, I had to wait it out on the couch until a lapse in the gut-busting occurred and I regained control of my muscles. It took only moments before the volcano Mount Anus had blown its top. The air quickly turned poisonous from the methane and sulfuric fumes it spewed forth. Violence and terror are understatements of what happened for the next 45 minutes. I sustained third-degree burns from contact with the lava that flowed abruptly from my bowels. My blood <laughs> pressure was at record levels, and my body mass was reduced by four pounds. After ample ventilation of the crime scene, I quickly took a shower and changed clothes because the powerful fumes had soaked through the fabric and into the skin. Oh, I almost had a mental breakdown in the shower. After realizing those little gummy bears had nearly defeated such a man that I thought I was. I can now hardly bear to look forward through the night terrors and PTSD that will come of this horrid event. <laughs> Joseph. All right. My review is entitled Loud Farts. It's a one, one out of five stars. Remember, says, all of these are up for grabs for your, uh, for, for your thread. Oh, absolutely. I'm going to say they're transformers or some give a movie to the review nice i purchased these bad boys hoping that what the others described would happen i think a good poop is life-changing <laughs> anyways i was disappointed when i ate about 15 then about 30 then about the whole bag and didn't have quite the same reaction i didn't have to poop my insides didn't fall out I wasn't stuck on the toilet in agony. What did happen, however, is I did fart louder than I ever thought possible. Every minute, on the minute, for a good 12 hours. I woke up 30 to 40 times throughout the night because I thought one of my roommates was being murdered. Because it sounded like a machine gun <laughs> was fired nearby. <laughs> it was to my surprise when I realized that the sound was coming from under my comforter and that the machine gun was, in fact, my butt. <laughs> if you're really into feeling uncomfortably bloated and having awful noises escape your butt all night and all day throughout work, then buy it. If not, don't. I actually had to take a real laxative to finally get these bears to make an escape. Ah! <laughs> oh, God. Make an escape! Oh, sorry, folks. I love the anthropomorphization of, of, of gummy bears like they are little bears. Okay. Oh, well, I love the fact he's disappointed he didn't get diarrhea. <laughs> um, Jerome, yours is a nice quick one. Yep. Mine... Is, so to speak. It's one star. It's entitled one star, and it's by Nikki's mom. If you want to be reunited with the gum that you swallowed in third grade, buy these. <laughs> fifty-one out of fifty-seven people found this following review helpful. 
the, the first person referred to it as the gummy bear cleanse. I think this is actually something people do, like on purpose. It's the um, the sugar substitute that they use. It actually says on things like sugar-free polos um, that they can have a laxative effect. Uh-huh. And you a laxative if effect you're sensitive and this to that. are not the same thing. James, can you top <laughs> the ball bag? I, I don't know if I can do that, but I, I do like the title on this review. Do not test the bears. <laughs> now, I, I think what they mean is do not exper- do not carry out an experiment with this, but it sounds like do, you know, <laughs> don't, don't push the bears. <laughs> don't challenge don't the bears. They will you wouldn't win. like them when they're angry. Don't, don't push the bears. They will win. And boy, do they win. <laughs> Rusty Shackleford, <laughs> a pseudonym, one assumes. Uh-huh. If, if you're thinking all these people are lying in their reviews, think again. I doubted. Oh, I doubted so much. I ate about 40 of these little bastards just to see if it was all true. Why? <laughs> what happened to me next was truly gastrointestinal Armageddon. It, it took about three hours for the demon bears to wake up inside me and launch their attack. <laughs> Let me be clear about one thing. This is not your... This is not your typical mud butt, no. <laughs> this is truly bear-generated rocket fuel shooting out of your ass and propelling you off the throat. <laughs> <laughs> you will not sit for minutes at a time, slowly cleansing your body of bear. You will evacuate your bowels instantaneously, and you will do it many, many times. <laughs> the fury of the bear started around 9.30 at night. I am typing this review at 8.30 the next morning and my insights are still churning with full bear rage. The fury of the bears! Oh my god! It's the best movie ever! (laughs) The flatulent aftermath is just horrific. I am not ripping farts, I am shredding them. You will shart, I guarantee it. (laughs) Oh god. Bottom line, do not eat the damn bears. You will be miserable. Heed the warnings. We didn't listen. We didn't listen. Oh, God. Um, I'm second to last. Oh, God. One star. Did not cause explosive diarrhea. Very disappointing. (laughs) He's disappointed it didn't cause explosive diarrhea. Just to be clear, the makers of Gummy Bears Harrible are not marketing their product for this reason. <laughs> <laughs> Why would you buy five pounds of them? <laughs> Stocking up. Take right. us home. One star review. Effed up in Effingham by Scott Smith. Where to begin? Little did I know my life would be changed forever after eating a bag of these little bastards. Have you ever prayed for death, but death wouldn't come? My journey began with a bear crawl to the bathroom. Journey. 
because I was unable to stand from the gouging stomach pain. It was approximately an eight-foot crawl, but I imagined it was like crawling through the Vietnamese jungle circa 1968. My colon and stomach were at obvious war with the little fun bears that I had consumed. There was an eight-hour period where I didn't know which was going to be the victor. My stomach was making sounds like a wounded calf makes in the wild. Well, a wounded calf that was possessed by a demon from hell. And the uncontrollable a a oh god <laughs> then the uncontrollable then the uncontrollable anal vomiting began <laughs> the sheer velocity of which these bears were leaving my body would have taken out most men <laughs> it was like a it was like a Wagner, Wagner power sprayer hooked up to a hurricane. <laughs> then came the awful, disgusting stench. I figured, I figured I had vacated my bowels tens of thousands by the point in my tens of thousands by this point in my life, and I had never smelled something so inhuman. The, cl the closest thing it resembled was the Great Jungle Gym tire fire of 1987 at a local park I used to play at. At this point, I had all but given up on life as I crawled into the bathtub full of water to alleviate the crippling stomach pains. I thought about my two children and how they would grow up without a father. A father who was just looking to cut back a little on his sugar intake and be healthy. Then came the uncontrollable sobbing. It's amazing how emotional a grown man can become after blowing out his anus and half his inside. Oh, Did God. I mention the smell? If I could bottle that smell, it wouldn't need a border patrol. I would... I would turn back even the most determined illegal immigrant. Forget ISIS and Al-Qaeda. The real terrorists are anyone who had a hand in designing, making, distributing, and selling this product. The physical scars may have healed, but I lost a part of me that, that day, eight years ago, that I can never get back. I'm done. Oh, I'm done. Oh, I can't laugh anymore. You broke me. The hyperbole and then the political message at the end. <laughs> if if we eat the gummy bears, then the terrorists have truly the terrorists won. Have won. Right. Oh god. Thank you guys for coming on and girl, oh my god, I'm exhausted as well. And my face hurts. My guts hurt from laughing that much. At least they don't hurt from the gummy bears. Let's do something else next week, shall we? Let's <laughs> Okay, thank you guys very, very much, and uh, we will be back next week. <sighs> and here's the second and final secret code. If you've got this far, it means you've listened to the whole thing well done. And to display a badge of honor for your endurance, just tweet at me or say on Facebook or on the forum, TFOB, the Fury of the Bears.